The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Yo, 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 what up? This is Rocky Asuka Romero of Chaos, and you are listening to Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is Keeping It Strong Style With your hosts Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style The ace of podcasts On the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Donovan here with the young boy Josh Smith. On today's show, we'll review nights three through six of G1 Climax 32 and cover all this news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping it strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can also get all the podcasts over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tea store, prowrestlingtees.com slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by the NJPWEXT, the only browser extension for NJPWworld.com with features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and share plus, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. You can visit NJPWEXT.us today for details. Young boy, this is the, the first Keeping It Strong style with Vince McMahon out of power at World Wrestling <laughs> Entertainment. You know what's funny? It was like I was working today and I thought to my, you know, obviously we're doing the show tonight. So I, and I just thought to myself, like, we're probably going to do the show and not mention this whatsoever. So, like, I think it's <laughs> funny that it's the first thing we didn't talk about. It. It's the first thing that you brought up. I would literally be fine doing the show without even having to talk about the man. I mean, uh, but I guess it is, like, big news, so, you know. Yeah, honestly, the only reason I even really brought it up is we did get uh, a few different questions about it. Oh, shit, and it's Yeah, and it's also, yeah, like, a very big wrestling news. It does kind of impact the, the whole wrestling world because as much as we don't really watch WWE, it's still the most profitable wrestling company in the world, and a lot of times, depending... I watch WWE. I watched Raw for an hour last night, and my God, it was so fucking, it was so bad. <laughs> it was so bad. It was so crushing. Every time, literally every time I, now, I'll, I can get through a pay-per-view, that's fine, but every time I turn on their television, it is the the definition of soul crushing. I couldn't imagine 
having to watch that. Like, um, it's so fucking bad. <laughs> yeah, bro. I, I can't. I can't. Raw, SmackDown, NXT pay per views. It, it's it's rough. Like anytime I see clips or anything that's happening there, like the wrestling is just super slow. The promos are horrible. The storylines are trash. I just I just don't know how. Like you know, if you if you like it, more power to you. But I just don't understand how there are two million people who watch Raw and SmackDown every week. I don't I don't I don't get it. Uh, I mean, you know what? I, I'm not going to bury them. Like, if that's what they like, that's what they like. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I, I don't. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so, you know, for those who have been living under a rock, Vince McMahon has retired as the CEO of WWE. He's no longer chairman of the board, no longer in charge of creative. Also, there's been a lot of investigations going around him with um, him essentially, you know, laundering money or using personal money and company money to pay off um, women to, you know, have sexual relations with him and then do NDAs and been this whole big thing. And um, so, yeah, we had a, a question here from friend of the show, Rich Latta, saying, how about that Vince McMahon? <laughs> um. Yeah, man. I mean, Vince McMahon is a, a terrible person. And uh, also, like, his vision of pro wrestling is very opposite of what, you know, my fandom is. So, you know, but if just putting all that aside, I mean, like, there's been allegations for years that he's a philanderer, that he's a rapist, that he's a bully, you know, uh, he covered up fucking jimmy murders murder you know he had a big role in the negligence that was involved with Owen Hart's death uh him and his wife covered up the ring boy sex scandal uh you know he had a big hand in what was going on with the drug trade in the steroid scandal in the 90s as well and who knows and then yeah all these other things are coming out now with like the I mean, they're not coming out. They're just kind of coming to light. They're things that we've sort of known about with like talents coming to him, talking about they got raped and then them covering it up and, and brushing it under so that they don't upset their, uh, you know, partnership with the U S military, all sorts of crazy stuff. Like anybody that just, you don't even have to be like a super fan. All you have to do is just do a couple Google searches. And it doesn't take very long to find out that this is a horrible, horrible individual you know what i mean right and it's funny that there are so many uh different individuals out there that are like god bless vincent man if it wasn't for him most of you wouldn't have the moments blah 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 blah. you know moments yeah (laughs) he built this industry you know this podcast really isn't about all that and i don't want to dig too deep into it in fact it kind of exhausts me to even think about having to to do a podcast like that but uh yeah i mean he fucking sucks he's gone and you know for for any good from a business perspective he's one of the greatest businessmen in the history of wrestling but from a booking perspective he's been dog shit for a very 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 long time and you know at this point he's gone potentially i don't see why WWE couldn't potentially be the best wrestling company in the world. They considering how much talent they have considering 
the platform they have, the head start they have, the money that's behind them, the production mm-hmm. that's behind them. The two things that really stand out to me as being huge detriments is the working style. It, it just sucks. It's terrible. Yeah. The wrestling in WWE sucks. And then the creative. If you could fix those two things, it wouldn't take much for them to literally be better than everybody. Who knows if that will actually happen? But uh, the biggest hurdle is Vince is gone. So, you know, maybe maybe things go amazing from here, or maybe this is the beginning of the end. Who knows? Yeah, you know, Triple H has been appointed uh, head of talent relations, head of creative. So I know a lot of people are hoping for the black and gold days of NXT to come back, except it be on USA and Fox. Uh, also, that is waiting to be seen if that's the direction that things are going to move into. But, you know, to kind of wrap up with thoughts on Vince, uh, I think he, like you said, a horrible person. I don't think anybody really needs to thank the, thank him. He, he's like Rich says, he's not our fathers. He's not anybody's, you know, besides Shane and Stephanie, like he's not our fathers. We don't owe him uh, thank you. He's one of the most overrated uh, wrestling creatives out there. Most of the stars that he got were already stars when he got them, or he's happened to luck into not screwing somebody up, or you know, Stone Cold's wife talking about his coffee being Stone Cold, and uh, you know, he almost screwed up The Rock. Like there's so many people that he almost screwed up, but somehow some mishap happened. He lucked into creating stars, and like you said, great businessman, very aggressive businessman, and also helped that he was in New York and, you know, a media capital and was able to have the, the resources to um, get his product on pretty much every channel and kind of kill the territories. Um, so, yeah, great businessman, horrible creative, horrible person, overrated booker. And I think, you know, WWE now has actually a, a sliver of hope, like you mentioned, to, to be a, a great uh, wrestling promotion. My whole thing is like, okay, if you feel like you need to, uh, if you feel like that's what you need to do is thank Vincent Man, cool. Where's, um, you know, Dory Funk Seniors? Thank you. <laughs> you know, where's Ole Anderson and Jim Barnett and Jim Hurd's, you know, thank yous, you know? Yeah. Like, you gonna thank Stu? You gonna, you know, retroactively <laughs> give Stu Hart his. What about Jim Crockett, Jim Crockett Jr.? What about those guys? You know, you're going to give one to Fritz? You're going to give one to the Sheik? Don Owen? What the fuck are we doing here? Oh, man. We need to thank Vern Gagne, you know? You know, reach out to Vern. What about Giant Baba? You want to thank Baba and Ricky Dozan and and Carlos Colon and, and Dusty Rhodes? Like, Get the fuck out of here, bro. <laughs> anyone, oh, who's, anyone who's doing that doesn't know shit about wrestling. Like, seriously. But what do you mean? I mean, the, the Peacock documentary told me that, you know, wrestling was dying in, in dark and dingy, you know, gyms. And then, you know, the, the shining hero, you know, Vince McMahon came along and saved the day, saved pro wrestling. Nah, bro, you need to thank Jack Tunney. You need to thank <laughs> Antonio Inoki. <laughs> Eddie Graham. <laughs> How about Vince Senior? No one wants to thank Vince Senior, right. Tex Rickard, for fucking starting the promotion. They're just like their whole thing is Hulk Hogan shows up, he beats the Iron Sheik. A little while later, he slams Andre the Giant, and we are off to the races. Thank you, Vince. That is wrestling. Nothing else fucking ma- 
Bob Backlund, fuck him. Pedro <laughs> Morales, fuck him. Bruno, he gets the pass. Like, basically, what I think most wrestling fans, were, they're like, there was a Bruno, and then Hulk Hogan showed up. Hey, Bruno. <laughs> and Hulk Hogan slammed Andre. And then and then we were in the arenas. Before that, it was, you know, it, it was just a bunch of dingy, smoky arenas. And every month they would go to Madison Square Garden where Bruno sold it out. After that, I don't know. You know? Yeah. Fuck, fuck your superstar, Billy Graham. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck it, Antonino Rocca <laughs> and Miguel Perez. Like, what? What are we doing here? This yeah. is ridiculous. <laughs> Thank you, Vince. Well, let me uh, run through these questions real quick so we can get talking about uh, New Japan. Uh, but from uh, Jeffrey Fusraw Dahmer says, with Vince McMahon gone, do you think WWE will be more open to working with New Japan? It's hard to say, really. Um, just like they say in the world of pro wrestling, you never say never, brother. Right. I mean, Triple H was the guy, you know, telling people how he could get them into New Japan. Um, and clearly we know Triple H was very open to working with other promotions and bringing in international talent, stuff like that. So who knows? Maybe with Triple H in charge of creative and uh, talent relations, maybe there's a possibility for that. But I don't think there's going to be, I think they're, they're dying. I don't think they're going to bend over backwards to do it anytime soon. They got Liger. Yeah, for uh, NX, NXT alumni. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rambone Slam Pinks. Undefeated. Yeah, he is. Want to know. Uh, Rambone uh, Slam Pinks at an alternate universe where Kota Ibushi had joined WWE after the Cruiserweight Classic. Can you imagine his tweets about the Vince McMahon situation? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, so when was that? Like, let's just play a little. You know, uh, that was what 2015 yeah 2015 2014 20, yeah. so let's just say he was signed up for like say five years right mm-hmm. is there any chance that he would he would have a made it to the main roster b not been one of the guys that was laid off during the mass firings between now and then and c would still be working like after like, like let's say he fulfilled a five-year contract would he even still be there like you know what i mean i don't see any scenario where in my mind, Kota Abushi, the guy that likes to take bumps on concrete, jump off of, you know, the second floor of buildings and shoot, shoot fireworks. fireworks. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way that that guy would have made it in NXT or made it to the main roster or, you know, not gotten lost at some point while they were traveling on the road, you know, trying to, find his way out of Ohio. Like, <laughs> there's no fucking way. Yeah, but like, like uh, Bushi, where are you? We're, we're in Miami right now. <laughs> He's like, ends up somehow in like Georgia. Like, <laughs> Yeah, bro. Like th- that would not have worked on any level. <laughs> you know what? Would, you know what would happen if he did sign with WWE? He'd either be back at New Japan right now or he would have jumped to AEW at this point, basically. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what. <laughs> I don't even understand his tweets right now, so I can't imagine what his tweets would be like in relation to North American professional wrestling. He'd be so confused, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, friend of the show, Dan Coffin, says, with Vince out at WWE, do you see another push for NXT Japan in the possible future? Uh, you know, maybe. I, <laughs> I did, like, but maybe not at this point. I mean, I don't really know 
um, what's going to happen. You know, I keep saying, you know, the thing that's going on right now, from what I kind of gather, it looks like Stephanie is co-CEO with Nick Khan, and they've kind of established uh, Triple H as like the head of creative, essentially. Well, head of creative doesn't mean business strategist, you know, and, you know, he, uh, like I don't see him formulate formulating like the business plan for them to like take over Europe and South America and, and Asia like he was when he was in NXT. I mean, he's, in fact, he's not dusting off the map. I don't think he's dusting off the map or, or the, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what are those things called? The little zip drive? Oh, flash drive. I don't think he's pulling out the flash drive with his, uh, <laughs> you know, with his presentation or whatever. Um, I'm wondering personally if Stephanie and Triple H even survived Nick Khan because this is the kind of period where there's going to be a power grab. They've been named co-CEO. That's not going to last forever. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Not Especially since cohesively... Stephanie essentially was kind of kicked out of the company like what almost a month ago now. And all these hit pieces about how horrible she was at her job, and now all of a sudden she's back. Yeah, so I mean, I think eventually there's going to be some come to Jesus moment, and one of those parties, or you never know. We like to joke about how Jeff Jarrett never loses. Someone's going to rise up and come to power. I don't know if it's my Jeff. world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's Double J or you know Con, not tony but nick (laughs) or if it's gonna be the mcmahon's like but uh this is very game of thrones you know esque at this point so as far as like what what the business plan moving forward is i mean who the fuck who knows this thing could be sold like amazon could buy this disney nbc universal yeah you don't know could be watching wrestlemania on disney plus social suplex you just never know (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, last question here from MJS PR. With Vince dead and gone, rest in peace, Bozo. Or rest in piss, Bozo. He says, the, 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 name, the name on the contract is Double J, but it's not Jeff Jarrett. It's Joshua and Jeremy. MJS PR says, Vince dead and gone, rest in piss, Bozo. With Naito finally, well, will Naito finally get his live, live his boyhood dream and headline WrestleMania? Is that even his? That's not his boyhood dream, is it? Uh, I don't think I've ever heard Naito mention the word WrestleMania before. I've always gotten the impression that he didn't even watch like North American wrestling or care for it on any level yeah. at all. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I will tell you this: I I like Naito a lot, but like if I was WWE and I was bringing over one guy, like let's say in some bizarro world. And I was bringing over a guy from Japan to headline or be in a main event, you know, main attraction spot. Tetsuya Naito is the last guy, not the last guy, but he's one of the very few guys that I I wouldn't bring him over is what I'm trying to say. Like, you know, Okada, yes. Naito, fuck no. Yeah, I don't think he, actually, I don't think it would work out at all there. (laughs) At all. Like, that, that would not work at all. Yeah. All right, well, enough about Vince McMahon and WWE. A-Town Down versus Naito. (laughs) (laughs) 
Logan Paul versus Naito. <laughs> the almighty Bobby Lashley takes on the ingovernable one, Tetsuya Naito. That sounds horrible. <laughs> the oh. big dog. <laughs> well, uh, let's jump into New Japan. G1 Climax. We've got four nights to run through here. So we'll start with uh, night three. We won't really talk about any of the stuff on the undercards because I don't think either of us really watched any of the undercard stuff that's been happening. Obviously, a lot of multi-mans, a lot of preview stuff. Um, So we'll start with uh, night three. One thing I do want to talk about, we had a question here from the LIJ versus Suzuki Gun match from Les Commission 7252. So with a slight tease in their tag match, do you guys think there will be they will go the route of a Shingo versus Sabre match for the KOPW Trophy after G1 if neither man wins the tournament. Hmm. That's an interesting question. What do you think in there? Yeah, I mean, obviously, they're, I feel like they've been teasing a lot of stuff for Shingo. I mean, Shingo and Jonah have had some interactions and undercard stuff. Um, Shingo and Sabre here. So I think there's a plenty of different directions. Again, it's going to kind of really depend on where these guys, I feel like, whether they land in the finals or not, or again, that semifinal spot. But I mean, going into the fall, Shingo is going to need contenders. And I feel like, you know, Zach has already challenged for the world title this year. Um, so I think to kind of rebound him and get something going for him, I think a KOPW matchup with Shingo could be cool. And maybe they do some kind of ultimate submission match or um, something like that, that kind of relates into more of Zach's wheelhouse or, or you have to tap your opponent out three times. I don't know. Some some kind of wacky KOPW thing that works out for them. Yeah, I mean, I really don't know. You know, full disclosure, I have not been watching the undercard, so I haven't seen a lot of the, like, teasing that's going on. So maybe there is something to that, but I haven't seen enough uh, justifiable interaction between the two of them to really think this is specifically what they're building. One thing I am noticing is that... Um, you know, it feels kind of like because there's so much going on in this G1 with so many combatants and so many different nights and different blocks, it's kind of hard to focus in on what the next progression of individual programs is going to be coming out of the G1. It's usually a little easier to kind of track that sort of thing because it's all happening within just one of two blocks and you kind of see the story unfold night after night after night. But you know, with these guys, it's like there's inactivity, there's long distances between the the nights that they're wrestling. So it kind of feels like everything's sort of insulary to the G1 itself. And I, I'm not really seeing that whole picture for certain individuals the way I normally do when I'm watching the G1. Right. And we're seeing, you know, undercard matches with a guy from like C block against a guy from D block. Well, they potentially can, will not wrestle unless they both get to the, the semifinals. So you're kind of seeing, like you mentioned, this kind of mismatch of blocks in the, the undercards. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of hard to kind of see, yeah, what's the bigger picture? What's the story? What feuds are they setting up? Or are they just trying to tease semifinal potential matchups? Um, the one undercard match that, um, that I did see that I was like really interested in, it was a uh, an LIJ versus... Uh, TMDK match. It was like Shingo and Bushi, I think it was, against Jonah and Bad Dude Tito. And man, the interactions with Shingo and Jonah were so good. Like, I need a Shingo Jonah singles match, like, right now. Like, 
their interactions were so good. The crowd was like so behind Chingo, like trying to like muscle up and power Jonah around. And the crowd was just so into Jonah, like throwing Bushi around. And Jonah just absolutely killed Bushi in this matchup. And the crowd was like gasping when he does that thing where, you know, like the guy will bounce off the ropes and then Jonah will just like kind of like jump in them and stop them. The crowd, yeah. like, the crowd like lost it when he did that to Bushi. Um, yeah. I think they're doing a very good job with establishing some of these uh, new entrants into the company via the undercards, you know, so like bad dude, Tito, Jonah, Royce, Isaacs, they're all kind of getting a lot of opportunity to shine and take, you know, they're doing that, uh, you know, to their full advantage, filthy as well, you know? Yeah. So I've kind of, I, I have, I haven't, even though I haven't watched them, yeah, like in full length, I'm kind of like skipping through them a bit, and I've I have noticed like uh, those those guys are really like the intensity level and the the way they're working. They're definitely like aiming to get over, get a contract, do something, and they're not just kind of resting on their laurels or you know kind of taking it easy on those nights. They're really going for it every single time they're out there. Yeah, especially guys who are not in the tournament, guys like Bad Dude, Tito, and Royce Isaacs, who are making the most of this tour, even in their undercard tags. Like, they're going out there and absolutely killing it and putting on great performances. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the tournament matches that happened on night three. So we the first tournament match came from the D block. We had the Tokyo Pimp, Yujiro Takahashi, defeating David Finley via the Big Juice, 12 minutes and 59 seconds. Yeah, not much to really unpack here. I mean, um, this night, let's just get this out of the way. This third night was a night that, you know, by the time we're reviewing this, it's about a week old. And when it first occurred, uh, every almost every publication and every podcast and, you know, pundit that's out there that is talking about the G1 was just burying this show, talking about like an all-time terrible g1 show top to bottom blah 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 you know yeah a lot of negativity and i can definitely see why i'm not gonna sit here and cap and be like open your eyes you're blind but i do think that they were kind of making a little bit of a mountain out of a molehill here you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um i didn't think that this show was that egregious to be honest with you i think there was a couple booking decisions that i disagreed with where I think it becomes more apparent in, in a case like this, like just to kind of give you an example, there'll be nights of the G1 in the past where it's like there, because normally there's what five matches each night. Yeah. Okay. There have been nights where we've had particular matches that line up with a few that we're going to review here, where it's like the matches is okay. It's not so great. Then there's a terrible booking decision at the end. Okay. That sucked. But then there might be, two really good matches that kind of pick things up and then a mid match. And then you kind of call that like a down night. And it's like, eh, there was some bad stuff there, but overall the wrestling was pretty good. And you know, that a, a couple good matches in this case, there's like only four matches. And so that margin for error kind of gets lowered. And then people are also kind of comparing and contrast contrasting these shows to the high level of excellency that we've seen from, you know, G ones in 2017, 18, 19, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, and so I think that the level of criticism, it's kind of outweighing what I'm, what I personally, as a fan, am seeing on the screen and, um, take this match, for example, 
uh, it's Ujiro and it's Dave Finley. It, it wasn't something where I was like super excited, but I'd heard some of the bad re- reports before I watched it. I watched it. I was like, this is fine. You know, the wrestling's pretty good. It's not like blow you away or anything like that, but this is probably a notch above what we normally see out of both these guys in singles matches. Then the finish came and there's the shenanigans and it's kind of a bad finish. And, you know, maybe the guy that you're not, you know, a huge fan of, I think a lot of people are probably anti Ujiro, anti house of torture. He goes over through nefarious means and they're like, Oh, they take a three and a quarter star match and they rate it like two something. And it's like, all right, you know, and that's not what I'm seeing here. I'm seeing like a match that was okay with a bad finish. You know what I mean? Yeah, and maybe I'm probably a little bit more harsh on it. So I I, I went two and a half on this match, and I mean the work was fine. Um, but you know this is David Finley's first G one, like, like we talked about. Like I feel like he needs to be coming out here and having great performances night in and night out. And yes, I get it, it's Ujiro. But I mean, we see guys like Will Ospreay face Ujiro. We see guys like Shingo face Ujiro, and, and get good matches out of him. And also that they're pushing the House of Torture stuff. There was a lot of distractions, interference. We had Cho coming out here, giving the wrench to Ujiro, which Ujiro used to knock Finley out and kind of get the cheap win. So it was just kind of like a, a blast start. You know, usually that first G1 match is usually like a, a hot opener. Right. Uh, um, and so it was just kind of like a uh, kind of a down way to get into this night's action. And like I said, it's Ujiro, it's Finley. Obviously not super high investment in either guy, but it's like, man, like, give us a little bit, a little bit more something to kind of dig our teeth into. And, you know, Finley go out there, kind of, put the effort in and you know, maybe we don't have as many shenanigans in this match, but it is what it is. And well, here's the way I see it. I agree with you there for sure. I think that, um, especially for guys like a Dave Finley or like a filthy Tom Lawler, or you name them for those individuals who are kind of like, this is your first time in the G one. This you're sort of like in the testing phase. And this is your opportunity to really, make a name for yourself and get over. You need to be going out out there every single night and not just giving your best, but giving more than your best. You need to be like fucking murdering it. Okay. I do agree with that, but I don't take that into consideration when I'm just in a vacuum rating the overall quality of the match itself. You know what I mean? Like to me, that's not really a consideration. Um, Again, I agree with you. I think that this needed to be better, especially when it's the opening match of the, you know, G1 portion of the night. Again, it is Yujiro. I just feel like what I think I'm seeing, and there's going to be a trend here, and this is actually something that is a talking point. There have been a lot of kind of bullshit finishes in this G1 already. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that is starting to also play into... uh, the overall enjoyment level of a certain uh, percentage of the fan base. And I mean, you know, if you've got an audience that is tuning in night after night for the whole 20 nights or however long it is and your feet, you know, and then you're feeding them bad finish, bad finish two times a night out of four, you know, that's going to start to really wear thin. And I think that that's another thing that's also affecting people's perception of the uh the tournament which is not a good thing right yeah i don't know what their the game plan is going forward but there needs to be a lot less count out victories and kind of screwy interference finishes 
Um, yeah. So, so yeah, this match it was fine. Yujiro gets a win and uh, goes up two points. The one thing I do think is interesting is like we always talk about like well anybody can win in a G one you know but and there are upsets but you also see a lot of decisions where you're like that figures but in this G one because I think they're trying to work out the math and they've got these smaller blocks we're seeing a lot in my opinion a lot more op, uh, instances where I'm surprised that who won yeah. And I think that that also plays into why we're seeing these kinds of finishes because they're trying to preserve the integrity of the the characters and stuff, but also like give an out for why they're losing, you know? So it's, it's been interesting. Uh, definitely not what I was expecting from this year's G1 so far. Yeah. So then uh, following that, we had B-Block action with Tama Tonga defeating Chase Owens with the gun stun. Uh, I like this match a lot better, even with some of the interference that was happening. Um, obviously, Jada was out there uh, with uh, Tama Tonga and kind of trying to help um, Tama kind of fight off the, kind of the cheating tactics that uh, Chase was doing uh, throughout the match. And, um, you know, Tama was kind of fighting from underneath here with Chase kind of cheating and trying to do what he can, taking every shortcut he can to kind of get the edge over uh, Tama Tonga. Uh, but towards the end, Tama was able to hit the gun stun on Chase and get the win. Yeah, I've noticed a theme where guys that have been in the Bullet Club or are in the Bullet Club and they face off with one another, and there have been quite a few of those matches already, at, at least on the shows we're going to review tonight. And, um, when one of them is cheating, the other one kind of already knows most of their tricks and they're able to kind of better avoid and defend those tactics than your average Hantai member. And that's something that I'm noticing with Tamatanga, especially in this match. Like a lot of the cheating, stalling, and different tactics that Chase Owens tried to employ just didn't really work because Tamatanga already knows that shit. And they're also making that concerted effort to show him as this like war pathing baby face who's on this, you know, crusade to get Jay white. And so they're doing a really good job of it. And it's not just in this match in particular. It's also something that's playing out in the undercard tag matches night after night as well. But uh, I did like this match. I thought it was pretty good. Um, I do think that Chase Owens and Tamatonga could probably have a better match in them, but it was fine, you know? And, um, it, this was another one where I saw people like actively negative on it. I didn't fully understand that, to be honest with you. But, uh, you know, the, the, the one detrimental thing I will say about this night is like it wasn't great. You know, yeah. it, it was just good or it was just fine. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was, you know, I thought this was pretty good. I went three and a quarter on it. I really enjoyed the work and I really enjoying the, the build of Tam Tonga. And like you mentioned in him being able to kind of outsmart some of these bull club guys like Chase was trying to use the exposed corner here towards the end, which he was able to to block and hit Chase into the exposed corner, which allowed him to uh, hit the gun stun to, to get the win. So, yeah, he's outmaneuvering these bull club guys on the undercard. He's teaming with guys Gokata and getting that rub and really getting over as a, a Hontai, you know, home team New Japan guy. That's definitely something that... Uh... You know, I think in 2022 works for me is when a baby face is not stupid, you know, I, and I think there's always going to be room for a quote unquote dumb baby face because you need there to be an out for the, the heel to get over on the baby face. But 
sometimes it is just refreshing to see a guy be smarter than the heels and the heels try shit and it and it's not going to fly with him and he already sees it coming and then it like i don't know that seems to be eliciting a better reaction uh, a lot of the time from the audience as well because you know they can get that that pop and that um you know that excitement from the crowd so i'm i'm liking what they're doing with tamatanga here yeah it's been really good so moving on to the semi-main event from the A block, we had Bad Luck Fale defeating Lance Archer by countout 10 minutes and 46 seconds. So this is what you alluded to earlier. We're seeing a lot of countout finishes, especially yep. coming from the A block. We saw uh, previously Yano winning by countout over Jonah in the same A block. And now here, Fale getting the countout victory over Lance Archer. I think the deal here is obviously with Archer being an AEW wrestler, I think New Japan wants to to play nice, keep their relationship going good, and that they're going to protect Lance Archer, I think, as much as possible throughout this tournament. And so, you know, having the count-out victory here, like you mentioned, too, like for the math to work out, like certain guys need to win. And so whatever the scenario is, they needed a folly to get the win here. They didn't want to pin Archer. So they had these guys kind of clever each other around for 10 minutes and then do the count out finish. Yes. Um, and, you know, that's definitely the case. And, you know, spoiler alert, there's going to be more count out vic- uh, victories coming on this review show as well. So this isn't the last of them. But this one really, I think, resonated negatively with people because this was the second count out finish in like three shows within just a couple days of each other. And I think that was something where people were like, you know, they didn't let, they left a bad taste in their mouth. The other thing with it too, is this just screams politics uh, because of the fact that, okay, it's Archer and he needs to be dominant, but he needs to mathematically take some losses because he's not going to win the block, but he needs to look strong and have a certain amount of victories. I'm guessing he's probably going to, uh, continue to win in this block after this and probably lose to Okada, maybe tie Okada, but o- Okada will have the tiebreaker over him when it's all said and done. That's just my guess. Yeah. And so he kind of needed this loss, but AEW doesn't want a guy like Fale beating him clean. So then they kind of agree between the two of, you know, between the two bookers well, we can do the count out victory. And it's like, it just doesn't sit right. You know, uh, for my money, I feel like Balak Folly is a believable enough guy that anybody in the, uh, you know, bracket or even in the company can comfortably take a loss to him, whether it's an AEW guy or not. So, yeah, this just screamed political bullshit to me, honestly. Yeah, I mean, Folly is being guys like Okada in the G1. He's a, you know, a title challenger. Yes, he's not the the best you know wrestler, best in ring worker, but I think he does kind of have that credibility. And for a guy like Lance Archer, before he left New Japan, never really broke in. I mean, he was on that way of kind of getting higher up the card, but he never really broke into that main event scene. So I don't think it would have been the worst thing for him to eat a bad luck fall or eat a grenade and get pinned here. My 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 main thing here is basically this: if John Moxley can eat a clean forgettable 10 minute pinfall loss to Hiroki Goto that nobody remembers. Nobody talks about. 
I don't see why Lance Archer couldn't hypothetically lose to Fale. Right. You know, uh, now here's my gripe. This is the lowest rated match of the night. There's no way this was the lowest rated match of the night, unless you're just strictly basing it solely off the bullshit finish. And I'm starting to learn, I think for some people, a count out finish like this is like the death knell. I think there's a certain, uh, there's a lot of fans out there that just cannot handle the absurdity of a count out finish. But I don't know. I think this had like three something on cage match. Dude, there's this was how many minutes was it? Like this was uh, 10 minutes and 46 seconds. Bro, they came out here. They were fucking clobbering each other. They did a crazy chair spot on the outside where, you know, one of them went through a, a whole stack of chairs. Archer was walking the ropes and flipping and shit. Um, even Fale would, like had his working boots on. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, you need to go watch this. I'm not even going to tell you this was recommended. I will tell you, this was not bad. In fact, this was good. The kind of rating that it got on Cage Match would have you believe that they were putting each other in nerve holds and holding each other on the mat for prolonged periods of time where nothing was happening and the crowd was groaning. That's not what happened here. These guys went out there and really worked hard, I think because they knew the finish was going to suck really bad. But ultimately, it doesn't matter because I think for a lot of people, they just say it's Archer, it's Fale, it's two big stiffs, it's a countout finish in 11 minutes. This was bullshit. Two stars. I mean, I don't see it, man. Like, well, I, there's think, no- I think another thing that hurts it too, and also it's not their fault, it's just the it's a semi main event of this show. Yeah. It's following two matches that had a lot of interference and gimmickry. Yeah. Um, and so you come to this point, the semi main event, and you know, you're kind of you're craving for a great match. This is the G. You're in that flow of disappointment, and it just continues to like rain down on right. you at that and, point. Because that's what happened to me. Like, I'm, it's a G1 climax. Like, I'm watching. All right, we had this. You know, Utro Finley. Then Tam Tonga Chase. That was good, but you know, we still had kind of some interference. Right. And then you get a semi main event. It's like, all right, we're the semi main event already. I mean, I have no problem with Fale and Archer. I think you know we talked about their their matches in the past, but like man it's a g1 man like i I want some great matches like (laughs) and that's another thing like these matches are also being graded against the standard of a pre-pandemic g1 full house you know great workers in in a tournament with two blocks and so that's kind of the grading curve and so like you mentioned the the work was was good They, they worked really hard but was this a you know but here's here's my thing with that Okay, and it's really simple. Just grade it appropriately. Like, I'm not saying cap for it and give it four stars because it's not four stars. This isn't even close to four stars. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, This wasn't a very good match. What I am saying is don't give it, like, a star and a half or negative stars. Like, people, I was saying, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, and this isn't even like a let's protect New Japan as a product sort of thing. It's just like I, I watched the match. It was 11 minutes. These guys worked really hard. They took crazy bumps. They were flying. They they did no rest holds. This is what you would call a work rate match, and it had a really bad finish. I don't know. I feel like a three-star rating at minimum is appropriate, but I get it. You know, people were not happy this night. Yeah. 
So now moving on to the main event of the show coming from the C block, we had Hiroki Goto defeating Tetsuya Naito 22 minutes and 41 seconds with the GTR. Yeah, uh, this match was very good. Um, I wouldn't call it great, but it was very good. And it was like the one, you know, notable high note of the night. Again, I will say this post wrestling, who I think does really good coverage of wrestling in general, especially New Japan Pro Wrestling, they put out a post that was like recommended matches of the night. None. <laughs> I'm like, did you guys not watch Goto? And I get it. If if you've seen Goto and Naito a million times and you're just kind of down on both guys and you also know that Goto's not winning this tournament and, and whatever, cool. But uh like let's not cap and act like this wasn't a four-star match. You know what I mean? Like I I don't know. I'm just kind of like again though, you know what I think it was? Mm-hmm. What you talked about. It's like bad match, underperforming match, terrible finish. By the time they get here, they're like, God, it's Naito and Goto again. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how good the match was. They weren't going to like it. But uh, I thought the match was very good. I thought it was very hard hitting. I thought that I, I've always thought that these guys have very good chemistry with one another. Um, and one of the craziest things was at the very end, uh, Naito hit Goto with, and actually, this is the only time this happened in the tournament, but. Goto's been um, landing that Northern Lights bomb on people, and I mean, he's like planting them on their fucking heads, like for real. You like, mean uh, Naito? Oh, yeah, what'd I say? Goto. Goto? Yeah. My bad. Yeah, Naito. Yeah, he planted Goto, and that's not the only time he's going to do that in this tournament, and uh, that was pretty scary, but Goto seemed to be fine. Um, But yeah, Naito wasn't able to get the... Uh, he was able to get a running Destino, but he wasn't able to get the full, you know, powerful Destino, and yeah, he ended up hitting, uh, getting hit with a. Uh, what's what's um the move that Goto does? Like his old finisher where he puts him up in the suplex. Yeah, and shout and Kai. Yeah, he hit him with the shout and Kai, which he doesn't always bust out. That was pretty crazy. And then he hits him with the GTR, and I was like, oh shit, he beat Naito. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah kind of surprising. Yeah, I enjoyed this match a lot, and I was watching this match behind. I wasn't spoiled, but I was under the assumption for some reason that Naito was just going to win. So I was just kind of like, whatever, watching the match. Like, it was good. But then, like, Goto's, like, coming from, was coming back. And, like, like you mentioned, he did, like, the running Destino. And it was funny. Like, the setup for the running Destino was almost like a finishing sequence, it kind of seemed like. It kind of seemed like he might beat him with it, which I was like, he never beats anybody with that. But he, he might. It's Goto. He might beat him. Right. So he hits that. And Goto kicks out. I'm like, oh, okay. And then the match really picked up from there. And there's like so many great counters. Even the crowd was getting into it. Cause he mentioned when he hits the Shelton Kai, they gasp, but then he picks yeah. him up and hits the GTR and they gasp and clap, you know, big applause for, for Goto getting the win here. And I think it's very interesting too, what the stories are telling. Cause you know, normally in the past, Goto's always like, you know, the G and G one is for Goto and he's, you know, very cocky and he's going to LA and training and he's supposed to be having this great year. But the story now this year, he's like, you know, I'm I'm not saying any of that unless I win. Like, the, right. G, the G and G1 will be Goto if I go out here and win. So he's kind of being a little bit more reserved. When you have Naito, he's like, you know, this is like my last shot to really, like, win this tournament and main event the Dome. So kind of telling this kind of, like, story of, like, you know, this is kind of make or break for Naito. And he right. eats, eats the loss here. So I think it's, they just told a great story with both both guys. The work was really good here. Yeah, I went four stars on this. Um, yeah, I thought it was a really, really great matchup. Yeah, I went about four stars as well. And, I mean, that's the thing that we 
pointed out when we did our review is like with the limited number of matches in each block, a loss is much more detrimental than it was before. And when you hit that 0-2 mark, you're really on the, you might lose the block already, but once you hit 0-3, it's a virtual, you're done. So, you know, you can't take more than two losses. Basically, you're in very, very dangerous territory when that happens. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people just didn't expect Naito to lose to Goto. Uh, Naito's been beating Goto in singles matches every time out going back to like 2015 or 2014. So, I mean, it's been a really long time since Goto's been able to get the better of this guy. You know, he did it this night, which was kind of surprising. And we've talked in the past about how uh, Ghetto likes to sometimes tell those come from behind stories. And I Mm -hmm. feel like with Naito, that might be what we're seeing here. Um, just in a more condensed version. Obviously, he can't go 3-0 and or 4-0 and and come back and win because the math won't work out, but he can go 2-0 and and be on the chopping block, and that adds a lot of drama to every single match because the wins and losses matter more than they normally do in the 10-block system. So, you know, from a storytelling perspective, that's very interesting, and this was a, a great way to end a bad night with something that was genuinely good and also kind of shocking. Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, it's one of those matches where, like, you know, people might say, oh, nothing on the show. Watch. Definitely, I would say watch Goto and Naito. Um, great work, great main event. And just the whole, the whole story of the match and Goto coming from behind and having the big counters. And, yeah, the closing sequence was, just, was great with him countering that last destino into the Shouting Kai and the hitting GTR. Um, and, like I mentioned, the crowd, you know, yeah, anytime you... That's another thing I'm I'm using to help judge matches. Like if the crowd is like gasping, like if you get the crowd to break the rules, like they're into yeah. the match and like they, they like the finish. So yeah, great great matchup here. And we had a question here from Less Commission seven two five two with Hiroki Goto defeating Naito. Do you guys think New Japan should use the never open weight six man tag team belts to build up new stars and rejuvenate careers like they did for Yoshihashi and now possibly have a chance to rejuvenate Goto's career? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely agree with that. I mean, what's the point of a title if it can't be utilized in a way to generate interest in the product, in a match, in a program, in a character, in a wrestler? Uh, if it can't elevate somebody or be a, a platform for elevation? So, I mean, yeah, that goes without saying. And I feel like that's a, a great purpose of a title like the six-man tag team titles. I think that who knows? Maybe I know that some people are saying like Goto's the one or like in this instance, you're mentioning Goto, but I feel like they might be trying to rejuvenate Yo uh, <laughs> more than anybody else right now. But yeah, that, that all remains to be seen because that's sort of on the back burner until the G one's over. But yeah, I definitely agree with uh, that's a, That would be a great idea. If that's what their aim was. Yeah. I mean, and Goto is still a very solid worker and can go out here and have like a four star main event. Um, so he's definitely still a very uh, valuable asset to the roster. And so, yeah, I think, you know, kind of giving him a rub here and using those, those six-man titles would be great. So we move on to night four, Saturday, July 23rd. The first G1 match came from the C block where we had Zach Sabre Jr. defeating Aaron Hanare 
14 minutes and 15 seconds with the Sunday Rail Engineering Works Replacement Bus Service. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, this was an interesting one, you know, because um, Zach obviously is, you know, kind of elevated at this point coming off of this past year's New Japan Cup and kind of looking to get back into that main event scene. And, uh, you know, Hanare rebounding after a big upset win over Tanahashi, looking to really cement his mark. And, you know, a win over a guy like Zack Sabre would have meant a lot here. Uh, He didn't pick up the win, but what he was able to do was showcase his brute force and his kind of strongman um, move offset, uh, offset, offense. Um, One thing that I thought about while I was watching this match, and I feel like it might be something that I'm liking about Zack lately, and might be part of the reason that he's so appealing to me as a fan. You look at two of my all-time favorite wrestlers, uh, Bret Hart and Ric Flair. They don't have a lot in common, but one of the things both of them had in common that most great wrestlers do is they can make their opponent, whether they're good or not, or great or not, look better than they actually are. You know, mm. And that's something that I think Zach was doing in this match something that was kind of missing from the Tanahashi Hinari match where Zach really, really made Hinari look like he had him in danger for like 99% of the match. And this is also a story that they're kind of telling with Zach where he had a lot of issues with Kenta in the first match and was able to out of nowhere, kind of get the submission victory. And in this match, they started telling the story where his ribs were hurt. And if you go back to the new Japan cup, down the tail end of that tournament, he had a lot of issues with his rib. Well, it looks like that quote unquote reoccurring injury has emerged during this tournament. Either that, or, you know, we've also seen where Hanari likes to attack the ribs, uh, especially with his strikes, that Muay Thai style. He was really digging those body blows in. Um, and maybe he re aggravated whatever it is that's going on with Zach, but he had Zach in trouble for most of the match. And, really looked like he was getting ready to put him away and then ultimately boom out of nowhere zach put him in a submission hold got the victory and uh got him out of there but he did a fantastic job making hanari look like he belonged and i'm, I'm not even taking anything away from hanari saying like oh it was a carry job necessarily but zach is so good at the selling portion and and all of that and i feel like that's something that's looked over when it comes to Zack Sabre, you know, we always hear the stories about how he eats opponents up and he makes guys, you know, look kind of foolish. Well, I think those days are kind of starting to pass away a little bit. And he's starting to move more into this kind of arena of his, his wrestling where he's selling a lot more and making the guy look very believable. And then using his very real proven submission acumen to beat the guys. And I think that's a great story. I feel like that might be something we see, from Zach for the rest of the tournament. Yeah, I really enjoyed this match a lot. And like you mentioned, I thought Hondare looked really, really good in this match. He looked like a, a killer. And like you mentioned, they really emphasized his striking in this match. And he had some nasty strikes uh, all throughout this match. He's now doing this kind of uh, springboard um, spinning wheel kick thing off the middle rope. He had some yeah. nasty elbows. There was, there was one where like Zach was like running at him. He had like, this crazy elbow. He just heard like, a kind of like, crack and echo throughout the arena and so a lot of his strikes were kind of sounding off and 
they kind of told the, the typical Zack Sabre story when he's in there for a striker. He, he, at points, he tried to outstrike Hanare with the European uppercuts and, and chops and stuff like that, but Hanare was just a, a better striker and was able to knock Zack out with some of the bigger strikes, and Zack would have to, like you mentioned, try to catch Hanare off of submissions, and that's exactly what happened uh, towards the end there when um, Hanare was going for the Streets of Rage, but then uh, Zack rolled out, got an Achilles hole, mixed with a half crab and was able to get the uh, quick submission victory on Hanare. Makes sense too, because like the uh, commentary team pointed out, Hanare, he suffered a very serious uh, Achilles tear a few years back when he was still a lion, took a very, very long time to rehab from that before he came back. And so kind of going back to that old Achilles heel, (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, that that was sort of his weakness, and Zach sort of knew that and capitalized on it. Yeah, and then uh. um, the next night on the undercards, it was uh, United Empire versus Suzuki Goon, and Hanare was still selling his uh, ankle, and then he was going after Zach and trying to hurt Zach's ankle. Mm, interesting. You know, I was listening to a podcast with some fighters recently, and they were talking about, like, you know, the different things you can do in a fight. And they're like, you know, when it comes to... Uh, like let's say grappling or wrestling, you throw a guy or you take a guy down. Okay. That's awesome. But it doesn't mean that you won. you know, in the Mm -hmm. eyes of most people watching, but let's say you're a striker and you head kick a guy or you punch him in the face. That probably is going to do a lot of damage, but it's not a guarantee that you're going to knock the person out or that you've won the fight. But when it comes to submissions, totally different story. When you lock in a submission and you really have it, it is a hundred percent guarantee that you have bested that man and you have beaten him because they're they're either going to tap out or they're going to snap or a ligament out. or they're going to pass out, and so that's kind of like one of the beautiful things that like I never heard it put that well. I've heard some of that put that way, but I never thought of like in comparison to other things you can do in a match. You know, those things are great and they lead to you potentially winning, but like with a submission, you lock it in and it's on and it's really on and you have the guy compromised. They, what are they going to do? They're done. And I feel like that's what we're starting to see from Zach in this tournament. Yeah. We had a question here from the dark soldier it says, Hanari was the first person in the G one this year to win his match. That means that before a second G one match happened, Hanare had more points than anyone. Shocking, right? I think for some people it was shocking that he beat Tanahashi, but, uh, at the end of the day, this guy's not going to end up with more points than anybody else. So, <laughs> you know, enjoy it while it lasted, which was, you know, a couple minutes, basically. Yeah. So obviously losing to Zach here, that puts him at one on one with two points. And Zach moves up to uh, four points here in the C block. The last guy who got a surprise shock uh, win over Tanahashi last year, Chase Owens, he went like. What, eight or seven and two? Two, do you mean no. two, and, two and seven? Two and seven, yeah. So, I mean, that's probably the same kind of situation we're going to see with Hanari. He gets the big win over Tanahashi, and then he eats more false than anybody else in the block, probably. Yeah, which we kind of talked about on, on the preview show. Like, it's kind of hard seeing him beat some other people in this block. Yeah. Uh, so then moving on to the next matchup here from the D block, we had the Dragon, Shingo Takagi, Defeating Yoshihashi in 17 minutes and 28 seconds with the ground Cobra. This match fucking ruled. Yes, yes, it did. We're not 
Okay, let's be totally transparent. We have not reached the high levels of classic matches that we've seen in previous years' G1s. We're not there yet. But when it comes to um, a match in the middle of the card being G1-worthy, this was definitely one of those matches that I felt was G1-worthy and would have fit in probably any block night for the last five or six years. This just was fucking awesome. Like these guys went out there and like anybody that's a, a Yoshihashi denier in 2022, like you don't know what you're talking about. Or you're not watching the product or you're just, you know, stubborn and hardheaded because this guy is awesome. And like him and Shingo, they went out there and they told an incredible story. They had an awesome match with each other. Yeah, one of the interesting uh, talking points of this match was um, with one of the man- maneuvers. Uh, obviously, Shingo uses the main in Japan, which is very similar to Yoshihashi's karma. And so I guess, you know, leading into this match, Yoshihashi is like, you know, it's going to be interesting to face Shingo because he does a move like karma. I've never taken my own move before, so I'm wondering what's going to happen if I if I hit it. And so that, they built to that, you know, um, Shingo did hit the, the main in Japan for a big near fall, and then uh, later on in the match, Yoshihashi hit the karma but he wasn't able to cover him right away. So kind of interesting story there, but there's a lot of great counters, very hard hitting. Um, You know, like we mentioned earlier with the never six man's kind of rejuvenating careers, definitely did that for Yoshihashi. Like this guy goes out here, always gives it his all very hard hitting. And this is a guy that you kind of feel like he's, he's fighting for his G one spot. Like he knows that he could potentially be on a cutting block, and he's going to go out here and kind of earn his spot, and that's what he did here. Um, like I mentioned, these great counters, big lariats, big chops. He had a great counter off the last of the dragon uh, into the DDT. He hit a Canadian destroyer, uh, which, which is an awesome spot there. Um, and then there, there was a lot of just the the sequences and counters and the back and forth at the tail end of this match was outstanding. Like it's something that I feel like has been missing at the top level from new Japan. And on this night, there were several matches that kind of harkened back to that type of style of wrestling that kind of put new Japan on the map in the first place. And this, this match was awesome. You want to hear a hot take from me, Jeremy? Yeah. Yoshihashi's Western Lariat is better than the pumping bomber. <laughs> Ooh. Yoshihashi's Western Lariat is better than anybody's clothesline in professional wrestling, period. Going back to the early Genesis days of this podcast, when we were, when well, I shouldn't say we, when me, when I specifically was the biggest Yoshihashi detractor and hater that was out there, I always gave the man his due diligence when it came to that clothesline, and he it seems like hasn't been busting it out like he normally used to in the past. But right, he, that was like one of his big signatures. Yeah, he brought it back out for this match, and he fucking blasted Shingo. Now, it's not quite the same, but like, give that to me any day over Shingo's Pumping Bomber, over Taichi's Axe Boomba. Uh, who else has an incredible clothesline that's out there? I can't think of anybody in other promotions. But I mean, like Kojima, the strongest arm? It's better than that for sure. Uh, he's got the best clothesline, period. He just fucking like he jams it up and like it's so dynamic. Like 
if there's nothing else that this guy doesn't do better than anybody else, that's the one thing. Like he clotheslines the shit out of people. Yeah, he, he puts he puts his whole body into it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Western Larry, it's awesome, and yeah, this was a, a really fun matchup here. Very hard hitting, a lot of great counters, and I think they really kind of gave Yoshiyashi some credibility here because Shingo had to bust out the the ground cobra, that quick kind of flash pin to get Yoshiashi because Yoshiashi was on fire towards the end there, was looking to put uh, Shingo away, try to go for the uh, karma again, and Shingo was able to kind of get that ground cobra real quick and derail Yoshiashi's momentum. Yeah, I wondered about that, and I'm like, is that more about presenting, uh, you know, is that just a a one-time story of this match and that's what it is? Is it like what you mentioned in a, a quasi elevation of um, Yoshihashi, or is there something to the idea that Shingo is struggling in this year's G1? Because keep in mind, he lost to Juice, and then he wasn't able to emphatically put away Yoshihashi. You would think in the past, those are two opponents that he would have had no problem getting through on most nights. And, you know, it's not necessarily the strongest start for a guy like Shingo Takagi, former world champion. Right. And so I think there's a lot of that going on, too. And also, I think they're just trying to really establish that that ground Cobra, because that was a big part of the Tai Chi rivalry when they were doing the, you know, the 30 count match and the 15 count match. They That was kind of one of his uh, flash pins and a pin he would use to get multiple falls. So I think they're really trying to establish that as a secondary flash finish for him yeah that could be it too i mean you know we didn't you didn't necessarily uh criticize a bret hart when he did you know a, a roll of pinfall like a small package or you know like the famous stone cold steve austin you know the the one where he kicked off the turnbuckle and and you know pinned the guy yeah he didn't criticize him when he beat people that way as opposed to using the sharpshooter so maybe i'm being a little too uh critical of Shingo for not using one of his big finishers and instead utilizing the, the ground Cobra. Maybe that's exactly what it is. They're trying to establish that move. But for me watching it, I kind of got the impression like, Oh, he had to bust that out like last minute when he was struggling. So yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, we had a question here from MJ does PR from bag of socks to future KOPW provisional champion. Would you buy into a singles title run for Yoshihashi? Remember there was a time where I didn't want Yoshihashi to ever win any title ever on any level in New Japan. Yeah. <laughs> but we're we're kind of past that. You know, this guy's held, you know, uh never gold. He's held IWGP gold. And the next step for him is to win a uh, a singles title. Now, would you consider the KOPW provisional trophy a real title or not, Jeremy? Uh, I mean, it's it. It doesn't have the IWGP branding on it. it. Doesn't even have the the never branding on it. I mean, it is. It's a singles, you know, role. I mean, that they main event shows of it. It's you know, it's been elevated now with Chingo having it. So I mean, I think it'd be a good little thing for Yoshihashi to eventually get. What's more prestigious, winning the KOPW title or holding the Money in the Bank briefcase? Uh, I would say KOPW. <laughs> At least, what you, about, at least you're going to main event a show of KOPW. What about King of the Ring versus KOPW? Well, I, I, well, I mean, what what year King of the Ring are we talking about? <laughs> any day, any time. 
Well, I mean, I guess if you're going with the overall, I think I'd still go with KOPW. I think KOPW like kind of uh, exists in this in that like kind of nebulous world of like it's an accomplishment, but it's not like a title run. You know what I mean? Right. It's just it's like a filler kind of thing. Like we have nothing to do with you right now, so here you go. Here's the uh, KOPW trophy. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I totally wouldn't mind Yoshihashi having something like that. I think he's been working really hard, especially after that monster, never open weight six man tag team title run that he had with Hiroki Goto and Tomohiro Ishii. Um, so yeah, I think it'd be a fun to have Yoshihashi having that and mixing it up with some of the guys on that level. Maybe uh, it really depends on what kind of like what kind of whack ass stipulations would Yoshihashi pick. Um. Yeah, well, and, and we we don't have to delve into it, but like I could just imagine him having like the fucking lamest stipulations. Yeah. What if he's like, I don't want to stip. I just want to. <laughs> I just want <laughs> to wrestle. I just want to hit my Western lariat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh man. So then, moving on to the semi main event, coming from the A block, we had the Rainmaker Kazuchika Okada. Defeating Toro Yano 10 minutes and 10 seconds with the money clip. So Yano coming out here with the bottle of sake. Very serious. We had, you know, violent death match Yano here. He wasn't playing no games. There wasn't no funny haha. And, you know, he was really taking it to Okada in this matchup. Yeah, I mean, this was definitely um, unexpected. You know, we've seen a lot of different facets and modes when it comes to Toriano in the G1 over the years. And normally there's some sort of uniform story going on. There's some sort of uniform, whatever, whatever it is, you know, year over year, obviously he's going to play like a comedic foil for most of the tournament, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of consistent the whole way through. We don't normally see like one night of the G1 where, it's different than the rest. And obviously we're only on his second night. So it's hard to tell what the rest of the tournament's going to hold for him. I'm assuming he's got kind of going to go back to the same uh, Toriano that we sort of saw against Jonah on the first uh, night of the tournament. Yeah. Well, I think that, he reverted back immediately right after he lost the match. <laughs> right. But I feel like this was appropriate in the sense that like it is Okada and they are stable mates, and he has struggled with Okada in the past and been unable to beat him in, in their last two outings. And so he kind of reverted back to his roots as, you know, sort of a no-nonsense, hard-hitting, badass sort of character. And uh, I felt like Chris Charlton did a great job on the mic, sort of talking about his inspirations and the backstory and you know, sort of his history, probably for a lot of newer fans that maybe are not as familiar with that uh, aspect of Yano. And for a guy like Okada, who is kind of going through a quote-unquote monster block, it would have felt inappropriate to break things up with the one comedic act when he's kind of going through these different stages and it's sort of like a gauntlet challenge. So I liked what they did here, and I felt like it was a, a good... Um, sort of pace to keep with everything that's going on story-wise. Yeah, like you mentioned, I think it, it had great motivation for Yano to do this. This was their first singles match in five years. 
And in their previous three singles matches, like you mentioned, Okada beat him. Okada beat him in 2013 New Japan Cup and in the 2014 and 2017 G1s. Um, so Yano definitely had to change something up here to try and get the, the advantage over Okada. Um, so, yeah, he was using chairs. He um, you know, doing some more kind of violent, underhanded tactics. He um, spit the, the sake in Okada's eyes uh, towards the end there to get a near fall roll up, which I was like, oh man, like that, that could have been it. Uh, it was really close. Like I, in fact, it was so close that like Okada popped up and was like, was that three or was that two? Right. Yeah. Um, and then um, Okada went for the, the Omega pin after that. Um, and then Yano was going to go for a low blow, but Okada caught it. Um, his drop kick um, does the, you know, that, Right, that Randy Orton kind of backbreaker thing, and eventually gets him uh, into the money clip. Yeah, and you know what? Um, even if you're not like a big Yano fan, and you might want to say, you know, like let's say skip this, I, I definitely thought that this was the low point of the evening, probably from a just pure in ring quality. But it was by no means bad; it was pretty good. And at just over ten minutes, it wasn't very long, and you know, it was notable just from the character work because it was very different from what you would normally expect from Yano. Normally you would hear us complaining about a 10 minute Yano match, but this wasn't your typical 10 minute Yano match. And I felt like the exchanges and the near falls and the counters at the tail end were really good. And it made sense from a, from the context that like these guys have been teaming together for like almost a decade now. So who would know okada's tricks and tendencies better than a guy like yano and being able to kind of exploit them but ultimately he did try to go back to his uh you know kind of um tom Fury at the end where he tried to low blow okada and that seemed to be his undoing because that ended up being the way that okada caught the hand and got him into the uh uh the money clip why doesn't he call it the okada lock doesn't that seem better it's just called the Okada lock. Yeah, he's but, uh, trying to go off, you know, the whole rainmaker money making kind of thing. I, I get it, but whatever. <laughs> but um, this money clip, the way he employed it, this is the best utilization of the money clip he has ever used because he put him flat on his belly and then torqued up. Yeah, and this is this is what I've been saying for a long time. Like, you can't just sit the guy down and just turn it into a rest hold. You know. Um, and that's not what he did here. Like he, he put him in position, then he fucking turned him over. Then he pulled up and I was like, okay, this is the money clip we've been looking for, for a long time. Yes. If, Yano, if Yano had done a little, like Yano did the, like the cell where he was in it straining, going out and then he like lightly tapped, but he should have done the, like, like shouting and in pain and like, oh my God, you know? Yeah. And like, okay. Yeah. Like, cause then it would have told me like Okada has finally figured out and mastered <laughs> money clip and this is a real threat i liked the way he put it on you know yeah. what's weird i had a i don't have a lot of wrestling dreams but i had a dream and i'm not going to tell you I'll, I'll tell you off the air but i had a dream that i did something similar and i think i've kind of quasi invented a a potential move mm. that's very similar to this not quite the same but yeah nice but yeah, this is a really fun matchup. Um, enjoyed, I really enjoyed it. You know, I'm pretty hard on, on Yano matches, but yeah, this is a really fun matchup. I, I think it's a match to go out of your way. Well, not go out of your way, but I think it's a match that's it's worth watching. I think you can just watch the whole night. The whole night was good. This yeah. was 
what was this the best night so far? Yeah, I think so. Probably, yeah. Uh, MJ PR says, "Is is the Okada match Yano's best of his career?" No, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's probably the best match he's had in a, quite a well. Just off the top of my head, just thinking off the top of my head, I. I know it's a totally different like vibe, but I think I liked that one Hiromu match he had with uh, during the New Japan Cup where they were cutting each other's hair and running around the building and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll take this one. Uh, Dark Soldier asks, if Okada beating Cobb, the person everyone assumed would be the only one to beat Okada in the A block and everyone already picking Okada to win the block, do you have a feeling Okada is going to be undefeated in the A block? It, it's definitely a real possibility. I don't know that I agree with that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a possibility, right? Yeah, I think especially if in the B block, Jay White also goes undefeated, then you would have a semifinal with both guys who are undefeated from their block facing off, which would make that match, I think, even more intriguing. So I'm actually looking at Yano's match history the two highest rated matches that he has on cage match. Now, granted it's not, you know, going to be fully encompassing, but uh, the two highest rated matches that he's been involved with are those two six man tags, the all chaos six man tag team matches for the mm, never titles. Yeah. Back in August and September, 2020, those are his highest rated matches, but his highest rated singles match is against Hiroshi Tanahashi in 2011 in August. And they did have a pretty famous rivalry at the time. So that makes sense. Um, the most recent great singles match that he had was against Zack Sabre jr. In the G one in 2018, which was definitely a comedy match, but was definitely very good. And like, we, I remember we gave like pretty high marks to that. Yeah. And I think they've also got like, Dakota Ibushi and Kenny Omega matches from the G1s in, mm. in those same years yeah. rated higher. They also have the Hiroba match rated higher, the one that I like. So, yeah. Yeah, people hate on, on Yano. He's not all bad, <laughs> but he's just mostly bad. <laughs> uh, so moving on to the main event of this evening from the B Block, we had Switchblade, Jay White, the IWGP World Heavyweight Champion, defeating Tomohiro Ishii, 22 minutes and two seconds with the Blade Runner. Well, you know, these guys, they know each other very well. They've been in the ring countless number. Well, it's not countless because you could actually count it, but they've been in the ring with each other in a lot of high profile spots time and time again. And, you know, there've been a lot of instances where Tomohiro Ishii has been able to get the big win over Jay White in meaningful moments and spots and, kind of felt like if there was a, a chance for someone to beat Jay White in this block, Ishii had as good of a chance as anybody. Unfortunately, yeah. he yeah. wasn't able to do it this night. Yeah, Ishii has a lot of recent big wins. 2019 G1, 2020 G1, which was the one where he kind of knocked Jay White from going to the finals. And then he beat Jay White last year for the never title at the uh, Battle in the Valley in San Jose. Um, the only time Jay's beaten Ishii is uh 2021 a castle attack um so yeah so ishii kind of going in with the momentum here and like you mentioned if anybody was going to beat jay white it could have been ishii yeah and i mean um we talked last week about how 
you know, during the Tai Chi match, Ishii didn't let Tai Chi kind of settle into a lot of his tendencies and, and uh, you know, different patterns. He kind of forced the matter, forced him to wrestle his match. Well, a lot of that same sort of thing happened here with Jay White, where, you know, Jay tried to stall. He tried to go on the outside, powder, and yada, yada, yada. Ishii wasn't really having that. Nevertheless, Jay and Gato were still able to employ cheating tactics, distracting the referee. There was one moment where Gato was on the outside. He just out of nowhere fucking blasted Ishii with a chair. He threw the chair from a distance at his head. And, like, it was done so well because I forgot Gato was out there. Right, because they had, um, at the beginning of the match, Ishii was telling Jay, like, get rid of Gato. He was like, okay, okay. And so he sat Gato, like, pretty much in that crowd area behind the railing on a chair. Bro, when Gato talks in character, he's like, thank you, champ. <laughs> yeah, dude, Gato, Gato freaking cracks me up. Bro, he cracks me up. He's like, he's like, okay, I'll relax. I want you right here. No problem. Thank you, champ. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah. And like, and then he's like, what happened? <laughs> he's like, I was sitting right here. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting right here. <laughs> He's, he's like whole head is busted he's just like on the ground he's like whoa what happened but um you know so they, they use that tactic and that kind of shifted the momentum but uh from that point on for the most part that was early on and that kind of gave Jay an edge to kind of catch up with a Ishii, who was kind of streaking early on in the match, and from there it became a much more even affair, but this match was great. Easily match of the night. One of the best matches of the tournament. I think for many people, this is going to be their match of the tournament so far up to this point. And these guys just showcased the same kind of intensity and chemistry that they've showcased many, many times before. They played off a lot of the, the big spots and matches and finishes that they've had before. The closing sequence was insane. This match is great. Really, really good. Yeah, and like you mentioned, a call back to um, 2020 G1 where Ishii had defeated Jay White in kind of that same sequence, but Jay was able to uh, reverse the brain buster there. Um, they had a great uh, spot where they were ex- exchanging uh, sleeper suplexes. Like Jay was doing it to Ishii, and then Ishii, out of nowhere, got the sleeper suplex on Jay, which was kind of a cool moment in the match. Yeah, Jay was kind of dropping him on his head for real. <laughs> yeah. There's a little they they both traded top rope suplexes with one another, which was nuts. Yeah. That was crazy. Uh I also liked there there was a little bit of that where they're both doing the same thing to each other. So like, you know, the famous spot that uh Ishii does, he gets a guy in the corner, he gives him the elbow and then the chop and the elbow and the chop. And then at a certain point, like Jay White got sick of it. He started doing the same thing to like Ishii in the corner and then Ishii reversed it and then he gave it back to him even worse. So like there's just a lot of like hard hitting intensity here. These guys were really working pretty fast paced action. Yeah. So yeah, towards the end, Ishii was going for the vertical drop brain buster. Jay slips out and hits the blade runner. One, two, three gets the win and Jay White remains undefeated in the B block. He's now up to four points. Yeah. And that puts Ishii in a really precarious position because that's his second consecutive loss in the tournament. And it does not at this point feel like he has a shot of 
getting that potential. We don't even know if he's going to get it, but that potential Naito booking of like, okay, I'm going to come back from this because, you know, we'd already heard rumors that like Ishii was on the chopping block, might not even been in this year's G1 anyways. And now that he's 0-2, it's like, you think he's going to go, you know, undefeated for the rest of the tournament seems highly unlikely. And even if he does, that's something we haven't really touched on. For some of these guys that are favored, like Okada in A block and Jay White in B block, when you lose to them, if they're not your only loss in the entire block and you wind up, like, let's say, going undefeated the rest of the time and then you tie them, they're probably going to have the tiebreaker over you. So for a lot of a lot of guys, when they do lose to those individual wrestlers just early on, that's like the death knell. It's like it doesn't matter what you do the rest of the time unless something happens where those guys lose a, a few matches you're going to you're going to drop the tiebreaker to them anyways and that's pretty much the end of your tournament. Yeah, Jeff Cobb is in that position right now in the A block. He lost to Okada and so now he pretty much has to he's in the, a spot where he pretty much has to win like he said all his matches so that way he can at least ha- have more points or if it comes down to a tie at least um try to be somewhat even to maybe it comes up to a playoff or something but he's going to really have to make sure he wins all his matches to be able to knock Okada out for winning the A block. There was also a moment where Jay White hit Tomohiro Ishii with his own brainbuster as well. Yeah, match. that so, was dope. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff here. Definitely a big recommend if you haven't seen it. Post match, we got a question about it, but post match, Jay White decided that he was going to cut a promo in Japanese for <laughs> yeah. the fans. <laughs> and then he called in uh, one of the young lines to come in and translate for him. And then he proceeded to just clap rhythmically nonsense over and over and over again (laughs) basically this was a uh him mocking the japanese audience for not using their voices and not going against the mandates and not cheering and and all that where they're still just clap crowds so you know um the guy's a heel and he's doing heel shit and it's working yes when he he called oiwa in to translate (laughs) he's like come in and translate to the people (laughs) Yeah, uh, this this is the language you guys speak, right? You guys clap, right? That's your deal. Yeah, I also think it was a, a troll on Kenny Omega because that week, the yes. uh, Kenny Omega uh, Japanese promo where he first like cut his promo in Japanese was like kind of going viral on the internet for some reason, and uh, I thought I think it might have been a little little troll troll on that also. Oh, it's exactly what it was. But uh, in any case, that was his uh, close showing. Uh, his show closing segment. So great promo from uh, the champ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, ESJ in the discord says, I think we're going to need an in-depth analysis of Jay White's post-match promo from his match against Ishii. What he said was. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Don't you guys understand claps? Don't you understand clapping? I don't. <laughs> There's not much to really dive into. I mean, I thought it was pretty, you know, cut and dry what he was saying. I understood it. Yeah. I got it. (laughs) So moving on to night five, Sunday, July 24th. Show opened up. uh, First uh, tournament match was from the D block. El Fantasmo picking up his first win in the tournament. He defeats Yujiro Takahashi 15 minutes and 39 seconds with the Thunder Kiss 86. 
Yeah, so the match starts off. Obviously, Ujiro is a quote-unquote Bull Club member, but he is also a sub-unit member of the House of Torture. El Fantasmo comes in as a Bull Club member. They uh, do the whole too sweet, everything like that. Everything is, you know, good. And Ujiro offers a, or he propositions El Fantasmo. He says, you give me this win, let me get the two points, and I'll give you Peter for the night. Yeah. And El Fantasmo is like thinking about it. And he's like, I'll take you up on that offer. They too sweet on it. They shake hands. Gentleman's agreement. Peter looks very confused and you know, kind of concerned about this arrangement that the gentlemen have made. Um, and Ujiro tells El Fantasmo to lay down. Now, here's where you know you're getting played. El Fantasmo could have just forfeited the match and walked out of the ring and left with Peter. Just like, remember all those times where Godfather gave people the opportunity you could either wrestle me or I'll let you go home with the hose. Yeah. And they would leave and he would win the match. <laughs> yeah. Be a count out. Yeah. I don't understand why that, that like Ujiro must not have watched the attitude era. on You <laughs> <laughs> must not have played WWF. No mercy for the Nintendo 64. <laughs> Okay, when you play the branching storylines, that was always an op- that was an option in the in- intercontinental, you know, branching storyline. So, um, yeah, so Ujiro basically was like, "All right, well, let's have the match. You lay down for me," and he takes sweet time, lays on top of him. Phantasma rolls him up, lets him know real quick, "We're gonna have a real match." And then these guys had a bullshit laden cheat fest match, but uh, even though the match wasn't great, it is Ujiro. ELP was awesome in the match. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about when we're talking about the Finley Jiro match. Like ELP, yes, there were still the shenanigans and some cheating and the whole Peter thing, but ELP, when it came down to it, was working super hard. He hit an Asai moonsault in this match. He's bumping around. He's throwing super, super kicks. He's, you know, doing those high flying and working really hard and having, you know, a, a pretty decent matchup here with Yujiro. Now, down towards the tail end, um, they started to really employ a lot of the House of Torture shit. Mm-hmm. And this is something we were starting to see throughout this tournament. It's not like a it's not a storyline that's at the forefront. It's not like in your like remember a couple of years ago where it was really in your face, like who's the real leader of Bullet Club? Is it evil or is it Jay? Yeah. It's not like that. But we're seeing these matches between House of Torture and Bull Club members, and it's kind of becoming this like sub storyline kind of in the background where these guys are not totally cohesive. They're not getting along, which is to be expected. And we're seeing uh, the House of Torture guys come out and cheat for one another. And that was sort of what was going on here. You had, you know, uh, show sort of try to interact and utilize the, uh, the the wrench and freaking phantasma was able to do the famous eddie guerrero spot where he clanked the wrench threw it in uh uh ujiro's hands fell down on the ground did the big sell the referee sees it and then makes them get rid of it when uh (laughs) ujiro turns around boom dick punch and that kind of that was the big setup for the Thunder Kiss, which is what allowed ELP to get the win. And this is what I alluded to earlier when I talked about Tamatonga sort of being able to anticipate and understand how to overcome the cheating ways of 
Chase Owens. Mm-hmm. We, we saw that on display here again with ELP against Sujiro. So these guys that are in the same factions, they kind of know each other's tactics. Right. I'm sure, yeah, ELP knew that show and these House of Torture guys were going to get involved somehow. So, yeah, I was able to outsmart those guys, outwit them. Like you mentioned, pull the Eddie Guerrero spot. He, he hits uh, Tope on show, clears show out. It's Thunder Kiss 86, gets the win. Um, and then after the match, ELP leaves with Peter. Yeah. Uh, now, keep in mind, it was consensual. He gave her the option to go with him, and she obliged. And so they left together, and, you know, Yujiro was embarrassed and also you know, just kind of shocked. He's on the ground holding his nads, looking on. His girl walks away with, with uh, you know, one of his mates. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, in the, po- in, the post- in the post-match promo, ELP's like, you know what consent means, right? Consent? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, what? Yeah, oh, like, he, he said that to the, Peter? Yeah. Oh, see, I thought, okay. Let's back up. Yeah. I was laughing because I thought you were saying I thought you were saying he was cutting a promo like that on Yujiro. Oh uh, no, no, he, he was talking. He was talking to Peter. He's like, he's like consent. You know, you know what consent means, right? She's like, yes, yes. And That's she's kind of fucked up. I don't know if I like that. And she's like, what does ELP stand for? He's like, uh, whispers in her ear, and like walks off of her. Uh, I don't know if I like all that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. But, uh, yeah, we had a question from Dark, Dark Soldier. He said, poor Yujiro. He loses his match, loses the function of his balls during the rest of the night, and he loses his girl. Also, does that mean that if someone beats Phantasmo, they now get Peter? No, nah, I don't think that's how it works. Again, it has to be, you know, consensual. Like, Peter has to, to agree to, to do this. This is the king of sports, Okay not the king of human trafficking so yes no you don't you don't get someone as a slave or as a sex object just for defeating another person i don't know if i like this whole phantasmo <laughs> I, I know i'm not like the wokest person but like, it's a little it's a little it's a little iffy yeah it's gonna be interesting <laughs> to see if if yeah peter kind of remains with phantasmo throughout this tour or just going forward in the future like i don't know i don't know man yeah i was i was wondering that too like are they gonna be like a on-screen duo now like i think if i was her right and i was looking at the upside of career trajectories would i rather be on the arm of elp and a valet to him as he's on his rise in the company or would i like to stick with yujiro in the house of torture as his hoe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> ELP definitely seems like the better option there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so moving on to uh, the next matchup here uh, from the B block. Also, I just want to say like some of the commentary too, from like uh, Charlton Kelly, I was like, you got to play fast and loose here. Yeah. Like y'all got wives. Like, what are y'all doing? <laughs> <laughs> like not gonna get on tv with this content yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh so moving on to the next matchup from the b block we had the cole skull sonata defeating tai chi with a o'connor bridge 16 minutes and one second i thought this match ruled 
yeah. thought that this was a, uh, you know how we always talk about like we, you don't know what Sonata you're gonna get, whether it's good or bad Sonata. We got good Sonata, like the motivated, like ready to play Sonata. And same thing with well, Taichi's been game the whole tournament, so this is just another great match in. You know, it's only two matches, but so far, what is a pretty stellar um, G1 resume for Tai Chi this year. And uh, unfortunately for Tai Chi, he picks up a loss, so he's one and one. But remember when I was talking about how in this tournament we're starting to see the elaborate reversals and crazy closing sequences nowhere else in the tournament was that more on display than in this uh match in particular these guys just went round and round and round and round and round and i mean there was a lot of times where i thought the match was over they kept doing false finishes and crazy reversals mm. and very hard fought match there's a lot of allusions to both men's um histories with all japan but different eras of all japan and their training and upbringing and, and stylistic backgrounds. Chris Charlton did a great job there, but they went out there and they had a really hard hitting, very technical, crazy match. I bought on a few of the different finishes. I thought there are many times where Tai Chi or Sonata could have won, but ultimately Sonata was able to uh, use his technical acumen to get that roll up that O'Connor roll, but a great match. Yeah, Tai Chi targeted the orbital bone of Sonata, who just recently came back from that broken orbital bone. So he was doing the Kawada kicks there, that the big like sumo strike there. He's targeting a lot of Sonata's eye, and Sonata's eye did look to get swollen uh, by the end of the match. Um, so yeah, Tai Chi was really working that over, and there was a cool spot where um, Tai Chi was going for that um, choke slam off the top rope, and Sonata yeah. flipped out, landed on his feet. Um, and got a, like a roll up from that And so like you mentioned yeah, There's a lot of great reversals and near falls here Between both of these guys And then um, Taichi goes for the Black Mephisto uh, And then Sonata was able to flip out of that And then Sonata once again Gets the O'Connor roll there towards the end And, and gets the win over Taichi There was also a really cool spot Where Taichi was looking for that Tawei choke slam He didn't get it Sonata was able to get to the top rope, kick him off, and it looked like he was going to uh, do some sort of like probably like John Woo drop kick, like that front style drop kick. And Tai Chi caught him and fucking choke slammed him off <laughs> yes. of it. It was really cool. Yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff. This was hard hitting and very fast paced. Like these guys are great. I, I, I can't recall them working together. I'm sure they have, but I can't recall them having a match this high caliber before. So, you know. You never with Tai Chi, you kind of know what you're going to get, but with Sonata, sometimes he just turns it on it. And you're like, this guy, when he turns it on like this, and he's doing the awesome planchas and he's like working at, at the top of this level, you're like, no reason this guy couldn't be like a top like five or six guy. Yeah. And then, and then there's other nights where it's like, this guy does not belong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those rare things that you don't know if he's going to come ready to, to go or not. But this night he was ready to go. He had his working boots on, had a really fun matchup here with Tai Chi. Yeah. So uh, moving on to the next batch, semi-main event of the night coming from the A block. We had Jeff Cobb defeating Bad Luck Fale, 7 minutes and 13 seconds with the Tour of the Islands. All right, so here we are. 
You want to talk about a bad match in the G1, an actual truly bad match that deserves bad match ratings. We're here. No surprise. It is a bad luck falling match, but uh, remember how I talked about how hard hitting and, you know, um, how these guys had put their work boots on in the Archer and Folly match. Get rid of all that shit because when Cobb and Folly came out here, they phoned this <laughs> in. Okay. This was a match that was truly deserving of a pretty bad rating and it was sub three stars. But I haven't looked at the ratings. I bet you it's probably got a higher rating than the Folly match because the finish was admittedly fucking awesome. Because even though the match was terrible, I don't know how Jeff Cobb got Folly up and he hoisted that man's body and hit him with that tour of the islands, which is something I didn't necessarily expect. Obviously, you know, he's very strong and he can do, he's capable of doing it, but seeing is believing. And yeah, when, once he hit that, you know, it was game over and it was quick and short and easy and it was, it was nice, but uh, there was a lot of very, very bad, slow wrestling in this match where I was yeah. like, oh, God. A lot of stalling. Fale was doing like the surfboard thing, the, the Tongan massage parlor thing throughout the match a lot. And Cobb was kind of fighting from underneath. But then, yeah, towards the end, Cobb, soup, first he suplexed Fale and then immediately picked him up, like you said, hits the uh, tour of the island. So like that was a cool spot. Crowd kind of gasped on, on that. And again, it was a very short, only, only seven minutes, but also not, not the best thing here. But it was cool to see Cobb pick up Fale and spin him around, drop him with the tour of the island. So uh, Cobb goes up to two points here. And like we were mentioning earlier, like he is on a kind of a desperation run here. Even though he's only lost one, he's lost to Okada, who we know is probably not going to eat many losses here. And hasn't ate a loss yet. So if he wants to win the block, he's going to need to win everything else and hope that Okada loses some matches too. Absolutely. Now, just to kind of give you an example of what I'm talking about here, this match got 4.60. That's probably, in my opinion, probably a little too high. That's like above, I would probably go like two stars. I don't know what you gave this match. I think I went two on it. Let me uh, see. Yeah, I went two on it. Right. That's what I would give it. So, you know, that's pretty bad. Uh, The cage match users went a little higher on it. Fale Archer, they went 3.72. Now, I know we're splitting hairs here, but like, in my opinion, give me the hard hitting, crazy match with the aerials and the chairs on the outside and a bad finish any day over whatever the fuck this Fale cop match was. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, either way, just give me a G1 with no Fale. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't want to mention it because I haven't done it yet, but I did want to, you know, I know that it's always been kind of my idea for them to do this four block, but this, what they're doing is not what my intentions ever were when they, when I first initially kind of suggested it. Right, and yeah, I don't the problem is four blocks is some of the guys are in here. Like, why is Fale in here? Why is Ujiro still in here? Like, you have companies who are begging to give you guys, you know, people want Jake Lee in, they they want a T-Hawk in, like, all these companies, like, yeah, here, take our guys. Um, You know, I'm sure there were other AEW guys who wanted to come in, like. Right. What I was thinking we, we could do, or maybe I could do, is like, what if I got rid of the eight guys that I think shouldn't be in this <laughs> and then just came up with my best scenario, A and B block. 
and see what that would look like on paper. I obviously it would probably look a lot better than what we're getting so far. Yeah. So uh, moving on to the main event of this evening came from the C block. The ace Hiroshi Tanahashi defeats Tetsuya Naito 22 minutes, 22 seconds with an inside cradle. Yeah, man. So uh, the, something I kind of alluded to earlier, Naito loses uh, the first night to Goto, unexpected. But then he comes in against Tanahashi, who has also lost his first match of the night against uh, Aaron Hanare. So they both come in here with a single loss. And we already talked about how detrimental two losses in this tournament is. And these are two of the biggest names in the C block facing off against one another. Lots of history, main event. This is a pretty important match in the trajectory of this tournament, undoubtedly. And I think a lot of people, just based on the the stakes involved, probably would have expected Naito to pick up the win here. Unfortunately, it was not to be, and Tanahashi picks up the win. So that puts Naito in a very, very precarious spot where it's like, at this point, he needs to win every match for the rest of the tournament, and he needs Goto and Tanahashi to lose a certain number of matches, which I think is feasible, and he needs... Um, he needs the math to just work out a hundred percent perfect in his favor. Now we've seen him go on comeback storylines in the G one, not even that long ago. So I don't think that it's unreasonable to believe that this is the 2022 four block version of Gato's miracle comeback storyline. He likes to do those in the G one. It's not unreasonable to think that that's what's happening here. But it's also very possible that he we've got Naito in a position where it's like even if he wins the rest of the tournament matches, he's done already. Yeah. However, though, I do think that Naito is in a better spot than Jeff Cobb, even though Cobb has only lost one time so far. Because, right. like, like you mentioned, the two guys that he's lost to now are Goto and Tanahashi. We know it's very plausible for Goto to eat a bunch of losses going forward, and for Tanahashi, like we mentioned in the preview. His point total has been dipping year over year, and he's I mean, he lost to Aaron Hanare in the opening of his tournament. So Tanahashi's at a state where he can pretty much lose anybody. So I think Naito is in, in a also he's going to have to win his next four matches, but I think he has a better shot um, of winning the block, even though he, he has two losses. A couple of years ago, these two guys had a match in the G1 that was one of the best matches of the year, one of the best matches of the G1, and like an all-time classic, and it was unexpected. This year, these two guys faced off as recently as the uh, um, New Japan Cup, and it was a severe disappointment, sub-four stars, very below par for what they kind of put out there. In my opinion, this was a very good match. I think that this kind of splits the difference between the expectation of those two types of matches. I'd probably go somewhere between four and four and a quarter, I suppose, but they really played off a lot of the, um, you know, there's a lot of history between Tanahashi and Naito. They played off on that quite a bit. Um, There was a point in the match where Tanahashi started to kind of dip into the black hat version of Dick Tanahashi, which is something I appreciated. <laughs> um, the, the one spot namely was where he was on the top rope. No, no, no. I'm sorry. He's got his opponent 
laid out prone in front of him. He's on the second rope, and that's usually where he does the pose, does the forward senton flip, and instead of doing the senton flip, he just jumps down and stomps on Naito's <laughs> bad knee. Yeah, <laughs> and, and everyone booed it because it's like this man has bad knees. He's got a bad wheel. You kind of know what that means, and then he starts hitting him with like dragon screws. I don't know, and it's like oh, okay, and bro, this is this is the thing. Remember, um, I don't remember who we were doing the review with. But we we were doing a review of uh, uh, the Forbidden Door. It was probably with Floyd, right? Yeah, Floyd. Yeah. And they talked about how Tanahashi had to be the face in that situation because he couldn't get the heat against John Moxley. And I was like, No, no, no! If this guy wants to get the heat, he can do it anytime he wants. That was on full display here. He stomps on the guy's legs, and he just slowly lifts his head up and the bangs are in his face and he's got this look on his face and it's like bro he can transform into he's like randy orton he can transform into the bad guy at any moment he knows how to play it perfectly and from that point on like he didn't go full heel but he was definitely like teetering the line kind of like how bret hart used to do so good yeah there was a spot earlier on where he hits the tranquilo pose instead of doing the guitar strum yeah Uh, yeah yeah so yeah, yeah, he definitely got a little bit of cocky uh, Tanahashi here. So he was working over uh, the knees of Naito, the dragon screws with the clover leaf, looking to get a submission win on the historically bad knees of Naito. But then Naito was working over the head and neck of Tanahashi. He had there was kind of a weird spot where he had the, the that full Nelson crucifix um, with the legs on the outside of Tanahashi. Yeah, and like they had, it got to like nineteen, and like you got to tell like Red Shoes held the count back a little bit so that they could like both get back in the ring. Um, yeah, and you know what the thing with that is, even though I'm not a fan of all these count out finishes, and there's going to be another one on the next show that we're about to review. So there's been a lot, like way more than any G1 in recent memory. Even though I don't like them. In a spot like this where they tease it, it becomes more plausible that it might happen. Because it's like, okay, they're doing a lot of them. Like, it might happen. And, you know, with the way that these blocks are turning out, like, two guys that are both on losing streaks. And, you know, maybe the math calls for them to do a double count. You just don't know. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, they tease that. But then, yeah, Nigel got him back in the ring. Put back on the the full Nelson with the legs there. So yeah, working out throughout the neck. Tanahashi's working over the legs and just a lot of great uh, back and forth counters. Kind of hit, playing the hits. A lot of their great you know twists and shouts and Valencias and combination that combrones and sling blades are kind of hit, doing all the kind of big moves towards the end there. Well, one thing I noticed was Tanahashi was moving like I've been mentioning on the show quite a bit. Very rough. Like even though he was still in there and he's working his ass off very similar to the way he was trying to work super hard in the John Moxley match. You can just tell like he's a step off. He's a little bit slower. He's struggling. Then he goes into this section where he needs to hit sling blades. And it's like, he's fucking Tanahashi <laughs> sling blade. And then, and then like Naito feeds into another one. And it's like, not like, we're not talking about like a delay of like sling blade. Okay. And then he's like standing up and we're talking like boom, 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 sling blade, sling blade, sling blade and i'm like how is he rattling these <laughs> off like this when did he regenerate like when did he go into a hyperbaric time chamber and, and who gave him a fucking sensu bean I I don't that, yeah man man ate a sensu bean <laughs> and like you know we're seeing we're seeing like uh you know what it reminds me of 
it reminds me of Anderson Silva. Anderson Silva, one of the greatest fighters of all time, when he started hitting like the the later years of his prime, he would like be looking bad and then suddenly he would do something amazing and it would be like a flash of what he was and you're like, he's still, it's still in there. Like that's what Tanahashi's like right now. Like we're in that weird, like kind of quasi phase. But like then after he hit those sling blades, he was looking rough. Yeah, he went up for the uh, high fly flow, had a hard time. It was taking, it was taking so long for him to hit those high fly flows. <laughs> yeah, he had a hard time getting his footing there. Uh, he went for it, and Naito moved out the way. Naito hit that jackknife uh, roll-up pin that he does for a great near fall there. Well, well, you have to remember, that was an important spot because during the New Japan Cup, that's how he beat Tanahashi with that exact setup. Tanahashi hit the standing high fly flow, and then he went up to hit the proper one, missed and that's when Naito hit him with the jackknife to pin him. Yeah. So that was a, that was a play off of what happened earlier this year, and this time Tanahashi kicked out. Yeah. So then Naito followed up with the Valentina, and then he was going for the Destino, but then out of nowhere Tanahashi Valencia. The the Valentina. Is it called the Valentina? I thought it was called Valencia. I think he has two. I think there is a Valencia, but there's also a Valentina. Bro, I'm you know I'm not the names guy when it comes to these. <laughs> he hit him with the Northern Lights bomb. That's yes. what he hit him. With. He hit him with the snowplow. <laughs> he hit him with the snowplow, and again he dropped Tanahashi on his dome, just like he dropped Goto. Like they're but they're close. Like they're like in that Hashimoto, like uh, Austin Aries. Like I can't tell if he's really landing them or not. Maybe maybe he's doing them so good that it's like he's perfected it because it's like he's barely grazing it. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. Either that or he's blasting them. Yeah, it looks, either way, it looks devastating. It looks bad. <laughs> uh, so yeah, then he goes for Destino and then Tanahashi pulls the inside cradle, the flash pin. One, two, three. Ace is on the board, two points. And like we mentioned, Naito, he's on the, on the struggle bus now. He has to win his next four struggle matches. Bus. Bro, uh, I rewound that roll-up counter into the uh, small package three times to understand how he did it. I still <laughs> kind of don't understand how he did it. Uh, I wasn't registering with my brain for whatever reason. But, uh, yeah, he did it. So, you know, fuck you, Naito. Fuck your knees. Fuck your life. <laughs> Bing bong. Bing bong. <laughs> Oh man, the ace rolls on. Ace gets two points back on the board here. Um, you know, increasing his chances of winning this block. And Naito, you know, the journey's on. He has to win the next four straight in order to win this C block. Uh, we had a question here from Mecha God Zuki. Has a dream of another Naito G1 been shot down? No, I think he's still winning the block. I just think that this is a comeback story. Uh, if he loses the remainder of his matches, I would be surprised. Who does he have left in that C block? Well, let me uh, scroll down here to the rankings. Seal. He has a, well, he faced Saber on the last night. Yeah, I was going to say, off the top of my head, the only guy that really poses a real threat is Saber. And I think that that's going to be, you know, he has to beat Saber. And I think. Saber already beat him in the finals of the New Japan Cup this past year. That's going to be his revenge is by beating Saber in the finals on the last night to win the block. Yeah, he also has to face Aaron Hanare, who's somebody he could beat. He, has, beat he gets to face Kenta. Uh, which That's is done. He's going to beat Kenta. And he also has to face Evil. 
Oh, that's e- that's easy. This done deal. He's going to beat all those guys. Yeah, I think the path is set pretty clear for him to win these next four and get to the finals or semifinals at least. Nice. So let's talk about night six. Yep, so night six that aired this morning, Tuesday, July 26th, jumping to the tournament matches. First from the B block, we had the Crown Jewel Chase Owens defeating the Great Ocon with the package pile driver, 11 minutes and 58 seconds. Interesting match. It wasn't um, something that I was like thrilled with, but it wasn't bad either. I thought that they did some good work here. Um, the, the really interesting thing was how at the tail end chase was able to outsmart Ocon and find an opening to hit the C trigger and hit the package pal driver. And it wasn't through really nefarious means. I mean, this is the closest thing to a clean victory chase Owens could have possibly gotten over great Ocon. So, you know, I don't understand why Lance Archer can't lose to Fale, but you know, great Ocon can lose to Chase Owens. And this, yeah. is, this is the second time this year that Great O'Connor lost to Chase because he lost him at, at Capital Collision. Yeah, maybe they're telling a story where Chase just happens to be a guy that has his number. I don't know. But uh, it is funny. You always hear people be like, "You, we've been saying it from day one, Chase o- or not Chase, Great O'Connor. This, this company is heavily invested in Great O'Connor. He's going to be a top, top guy. And I'm like... He lost Chase Owens twice this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the booking the booking is not leading that way. But no, I'm just playing. I, I, I still think that they got those plans in place. It's just, uh, yeah, he lost Chase. Yeah, and at the beginning of the match, Chase did uh, throw powder in his face because as soon as he... I forgot about that, yeah. yeah in the ring, he, as soon as he pulled off the question mark mask, yeah, Chase threw... <laughs> I want to give him that. Chase just ran up real quick, threw the powder in his face, and then yeah, <laughs> got the advantage from there. Bro, I've thrown powder in my eyes many times. It doesn't do shit. <laughs> and if you're wondering why I did it, it's to see if it works, and it does. <laughs> this man powdered himself. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Ocon was kind of fighting from underneath um, after the, the, the powder shot. But then, like you mentioned, Chase was kind of able to um, outsmart um, Ocon, hit the C trigger, and hit the package pile driver to uh, get the win here. So. Chase has O'Connor's number this year. It's beating him twice. They've also had the feud with the tag titles of O'Connor and Cobb against Chase and Fale. So uh, Chase here picking up two points. And this was O'Connor's first uh, match of the tournament. And over six nights in, this was only O'Connor's first tournament match. So not in too bad a shape. He can still reel off four or five wins and end with a decent point total. So moving on to the next match from the C block, we had Evil defeating Kenta. Be a count out 10 minutes and 13 seconds. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, every now and again, I'll be listening to a podcast or I'll be reading up what people in forums or different fan groups are saying. And one of the like recurring themes, one of the recurring storylines and hopes and wishes that I see from these fans is like, I can't wait till we get this Bullet Club Civil War. I can't wait till we see Bullet Club proper face the House of Torture. And I just think to myself of the various matches that could possibly be taking place between Evil, Yujiro Takahashi, and uh, who else is in that group? 
Dick Togo and show. Dick Togo, show, and Yujiro Takagi. You know, like, and then I think of like who they could be facing in the bull club, and I, Bale, you know. <laughs> and I feel like this match is a prime example for why I could not give a single fuck about a bullet club civil war. The only way I would care about a bullet club civil war is if you souped up House of Torture somehow with like I don't know, somehow you got. Kenny Omega, Fergal Devitt, and Kenny Omega, and like uh, AJ Styles to join House of Torture. <laughs> so you can come and fight the rest of the Bullet Club. I don't know. That so sounds like, so absurd. Can you imagine Kenny Omega, Prince Devitt, and AJ Styles wearing House of Torture shirts? I just like, I can't think of, just think of how bad the matches would be. <laughs> And so, like, this match is a prime example for why something like that would probably really suck. 10 minutes, 13 seconds, Evil and Kenta. Now, here's the thing. The the work wasn't all bad. They're actually, you know what? I try to be optimistic. There was one thing from this match I did like. Evil started to kind of express a sort of very sadistic, anarchist sort of energy it kind of reminded me of like the like uh what some of the heels of the 70s and 80s new japan and all japan used to do sort of like uh i don't know like sing or um the sheik or like uh abdullah the butcher those guys who kind of like would use nefarious see one of the things i haven't liked about evil is like evil has kind of done some like chicken shit cheating and then he uses all his goons to cheat for him. But in this one, he was really using a lot of like kind of like hardcore heelish crazy tactics on the outside himself, which was something I actually did like. And I think he was kind of doing a little bit of that during the Hiromu feud as well, which is something I like. If he could kind of start to trend more into that avenue of his wrestling I don't know if I'd be as down on evil as I have been. I sure don't want to see him in the main event, but uh, that was one positive. But for the large part of this match, there was a lot of comedy. There was a lot of interference. There was lights out. There was show. There was Dick Togo. There was no groats, but it doesn't matter. There was just so much bullshit in this match that like, it wasn't enjoyable. It wasn't good. It was like a microcosm of the things that have been bad with New Japan for the past two years. Yeah, and uh, and, and it's been in, kind of infiltrating this G one in in a very negative way, and it just kind of happened here again. And then we got another countout. It sucked. Yeah, this match was straight trash. Um, I know people are enjoying the whole Kenta plugging his book in the backstage promos, and that was a big part of this match. Him trying to. Plug, plug his book of evil a copy of his book and evil like knocked it out of his hands and like ripped it and all that funny haha but it to me like it was funny in the backstage promo i really didn't care for it here in the match you had um show turning the lights out you had um dick togo was the one that um grabbed kenta's legs as both of them were trying to break the 20 count so that's how the count happened with dick togo holding on to kenta um so yeah it was just all pretty lame pretty whack like again, like I was saying earlier, this is the G one. <laughs> I, 
I want. I'm sorry. <laughs> I this want, is funny. I want great matches. I don't want to, like you know if Evil wants to do this stuff, fine. Keep it in the never six man title division. Keep it on that low card undercard stuff where it's light, funny, and it's whatever. But when you come out here in what's supposed to be the greatest tournament in pro wrestling history, and you're coming out here and doing the lights out and doing you know, choking with the shirt, and Dick Togo's coming out, and Chill's coming out, and you're playing around for a book, and you're doing all this you know comedy stuff, like no, nah, this does not belong in this tournament whatsoever. And yeah, this was just. Here's one thing I will say. Okay, um, what what's the um. What's the stardom tournament that's coming up? The uh, five-star Grand Prix. Okay. So, you know, if you guys listen to One Nation Radio, I don't know if you do. If you don't, you definitely should because they're one of the best podcasts on this network. And every week, James Boyd and Rich Latta talk about stardom. Now, I always listen to it, even though I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. The same way I listen to them talk about music and sports, not like fake sports but shoot sports and i don't know what they're talking about but i still listen anyways because they're my friends but um there's a reason they call james boyd dr joshi okay <laughs> and by they i mean me i'm the one who came up with that <laughs> there's a reason i call him dr joshi it's because that's his shit like he loves joshi wrestling and he's been ridiculing me and i've been no selling but he's been ridiculing me with a tweet that uh, Stardom put out about how the five star Grand Prix is the greatest tournament in all of wrestling, and they put it out like a couple weeks before the G1 came out. And he was like, See, they this is foreshadowing, they already knew, <laughs> they already knew that like this could be the year that the G1 is gonna be down and like that they're gonna take over this shit. And I literally not responded or reacted <laughs> to it in any way because I've just been thinking in the back of my mind, like, We'll see, we'll see. <laughs> it's funny, dude. <laughs> Hatman Rasta, he, he looked at the G1 lineup. He's like, oh, they, they got Yujiro in here? They, they got Fale in here? <laughs> David Finley? Hanare? Send, send a tweet. Send a tweet. <laughs> so I've been, you know, and now, and now with this kind of bullshit, I can't respond to it. I can't be like, oh, yeah, James. <laughs> I have to just eat it. You know, oh. the only reason I feel comfortable talking about it is because I don't think he regularly listens to our show so i feel fine talking about this but like you know every every couple days i see him like reshare that fucking tweet in response to how things are going with the g1 and i'm like bitch (laughs) (laughs) oh man i was like yeah it's it's rough fucking fucking playing with my ratings you know (laughs) lowering the average yes and you know ratings Takes and opinions are they're not a game. They're not a game. And right now, Gato is he's playing around with the ratings right now. Yeah, bro. Oh, you know, remember man. a couple of years ago we were complaining just because like I don't know, because like uh oh actually that was pretty bad. I was gonna say like I was gonna compare the time when um when the Bull Club split and like Fale and Tamatanga and uh Jay White were kind of wrestling down and ruining the G1, but then I remembered like that was pretty bad too, so <laughs> It was, but I feel like you had some more We had highs. a fire beat block. Yeah. <laughs> so it didn't matter. Yeah. yeah. 
Anyways, let's move on to the main event, which actually was great. Well, hold on, hold on. We got to do oh, this. Is the semi-main event from the A. I skipped it. My bad. <laughs> from the A block, uh, the Murder Hawk Monster Lance Archer defeating Filthy Tom Lawler with the blackout. So this was good. Um, I don't. These guys have never worked together before, right? Now that I can recall, maybe Warrior Wrestling, but I think this was the first time matchup. Yeah. This one was interesting because, A, it was Tom Lawler's very first G1 matchup, period. And, you know, we've talked about the irregularity of the schedules. And so, like, Tom Lawler doesn't have another match if I were, if based on what I heard on commentary for, like, what, another seven days. So, win or lose, that's quite a, that's probably a little bit more inactivity than you want. Yeah, Lawler, to- Lawler's next match is Saturday. Okay, so it's not quite seven days, but, you know, there's still, uh, that's a lot of time. And so the win is really important for him, not just because wins are important, but also because that momentum. And I thought him and Archer told a great story. Unfortunately, Tom Lawler wasn't able to beat Archer, but uh, we've seen instances in the past where, Tom has been been able to use his technical acumen and his, you know, stuff, his tough, rugged, you know, like shoot style wrestling to kind of even the score against bigger opponents. And that seemed to work for the most part, but ultimately his inexperience in this type of environment and tournament, it was his undoing. And at the same time, Dave or uh, Lance Archer is kind of streaking you know, he had a great showing in the first match, even though he lost the count out. He was pretty much dominant and he was, you know, pretty dominant in this match as well. Um, I didn't think this was like blow away, but it was a, a, a good first tournament match for Tom Lawler. I probably went like, I don't know, three and a half stars here. But, uh, I would, you know, I'm kind of like deep down, like as a new japan strong fan kind of rooting for (laughs) tom lawler even though i i don't think he's going to get very many wins but i was hoping he'd get a a win over a guy like archer here and maybe i don't know have some sort of claim to show up on AEW one day i don't know you know yeah as a yeah it's a a strong fan and somebody we've been watching philly tom yeah i kind of want him to win i was also a little pissed that archer won i I get it like archer's facing okada in the last night and it's going to set up to where Archer is going to be alive going into the last night, but I really wanted Philly Tom to get a big win. He's doing a great job on the undercard in this tour. Like he's so over with the crowd now. Like the Corkin crowd, as soon as he came out, they were doing his uh, clap cadence, and they were really into him. They're into the the big like pants reveal thing. Like they're really digging him and Royce Isaac. So crowd's digging him. He's getting over. He's having you know fun matchups on the undercard. This is his first tournament match, which was uh, pretty good. So yeah, I'm I'm digging Filthy Tom in in Japan, and yeah, hopefully, you know, this is gonna open the doors for him to do bigger and better things here. But with him being the longest reigning strong openweight champion, and like they mentioned on commentary, you know, he won that by winning the tournament and defeating Brody King in the finals. So another big guy, he was able to kind of he mentioned he used his shoot fighting um, background and take on a big guy like Brody King. So it's kind of plausible he, he could take out a guy like Archer, and you know, he's been using that. Um, the nasty knee uh, on the brain, uh, which we you know we failed to mention the the new kid on the blocks uh, reference. Because I'm an idiot, I didn't pick up on that. And then after the show was over, like someone reached out, I don't remember who, but they're like, "It's new kids on the block." I'm like, "Damn it!" 
Like, and I think he, used to, I think he came out to New Kids on the Block on the Indies, so that like that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and also he's been using um the old Dean Ambrose Dirty Deeds, but he's been calling it uh the meat, I think the Meat Sizzler, which was the name that um EC3 used in FCW because he was the originator of the Dirty Deeds. <laughs> mm, gotcha. Uh, but yeah, fun matchup here. Archer was able to to overpower Filthy Tom, get a, a win here. Um, so yeah, hopefully Tom picks up some wins in this tournament. I would hate to see him be like one in five, especially after he, how hard he's been pushed in uh, New Japan Strong. And I, I like Royce Isaacs as his heater too. Yeah, I think that was the, the right choice to go with. Kind of comes out there, and I like how he's like. He looks kind of ridiculous, so it sort of fits the filthy, like, aesthetic, like, sort of almost, I mean, came out this night with, like, what, like, cheetah and purple on, and just, like, (laughs) a fucking, you know, kind of a geek, but also, like, a badass at the same time, like, that's what Team Filthy is sort of about, anyways. Yeah, he had a little involvement in this match, but Archer kicked him in the face and chokeslam Tom onto Isaacs there, and then got him back in the ring and that led into this the closing sequence going for the the blackout. Yeah, and for better or for worse, um one thing I really do like about Filthy Tom in these different uh tournament nights. I know it's only the first night, but this had a whole different feel than anything else that we've seen in the tournament so far, and that's because that's the style of wrestling that he works and you know, we would get that sometimes with like your Suzuki or like your Abushi match, uh, sort of that like shoot element. And those guys aren't in the tournament. So that's kind of been a missing thing so far from this year's G1. And now it's sort of re- restored to a certain extent with uh, Tom Lawler matches. So I like seeing those sorts of hard hitting strikes and, you know, crazy like submission exchanges sort of work back into the tournament. So uh, welcome addition for sure, and uh, wasn't disappointed here. Yeah, definitely fun matchup. I also went uh, three and a half stars on this one. So uh, moving on to the main event of the evening that came from the D block, we had David Finley, the Rebel, defeating Rock Hard Juice Robinson, twenty four minutes and one second. Uh, big main event here in Corkin Hall. We know the the history between these two guys. Obviously, former tag team partners. These guys have won the World Tag League together. They're former IWGP World Tag Team Champions. Um, prior to this match, they had three singles meetings in their history with Juice winning all three of them in 2016, um, back when they were in the openers of cards, when they were in that young lion phase. So, so much history here between um, these two guys. And we know going back in April to Windy City Riot in Chicago, uh, the night that you know Juice worked the world, he was saying he's going to retire, and there was this whole kind of send-off for him. Um, and then he came back and turned heel and joined Bullet Club. Uh, now, he didn't directly turn on Finley, but clearly kind of, you know, ignored Finley's calls, um, joined the Bullet Club, went heel, and just kind of left uh, Finley 
high and dry. And so that all sets the stage here for this kind of big one-on-one meeting. That's what you did to me when you got engaged. <laughs> Pretty much. I turned heel. Yeah, you stopped accepting my phone calls. You know, stop reach, stop checking in with me. You know, I like when you check in. So <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, um, like you kind of mentioned, just a lot of background between these two individuals, obviously. And one thing that was like in the past with Dave Finley, like the, the one kind of uh, reoccurring feud that he had in New Japan that had sort of been playing out was his feud with uh, Jay White. And in earlier years, that had been very compelling. They'd done great business in like, say, Corkin, which was where this match was set. And that feud has kind of run its course, especially once they did the show in LA where like they got little to no reaction and got just kind of beat like a drum. And it was like, all right, that feud's sort of over. So, you know, we're at this point now with Dave Finley, like we mentioned, it's his first G1. He really needs to make a name for himself. He he needs the right opponent to kind of make an impact and sort of, establish a rivalry against that Jay White thing is done and kind of totally gone. Like the, the, the levels of their careers are so imbalanced at this point. It's not even fair for them to even be having matches until potentially Dave Finley, you know, elevates himself. And I think that's what they were trying to do here with him and juice. Um, like you mentioned, obviously there hasn't been a lot of on-screen um, turmoil, because it didn't play out on screen, but you can infer what probably occurred between these two guys, just based on the long recent history of this tag team. And now they're split and now their ideologies are different and now their goals are different. And now they're facing off a cork in, in a major, major spot. And um, they talked about on commentary, how when they had faced off in the past that Dave Finley said, nobody has ever hit me as hard as juice Robinson. And so, and that was, they mentioned they're like, and that's when they were like mates when they still got on as the way that Chris Charlton put it. So, yeah, you know, you can imagine how much more so that might be now that they're enemies. And that was on full display. Like this is a pretty hate filled match. Uh, aside from the Zach Kenta match, this might be the second, what I would consider most like, you know, enmity like sort of filled match where there was just a lot of spite and kind of nastiness yeah this was a very like gritty very like hard hitting matchup like you said you can, you can feel the animosity be- between both guys um very hard hitting a lot of brawling to the outside throwing into the guardrails mm-hmm. um juice took the um the the mats on the outside up to expose the the hardwood floor which he ended up eating a back body drop on. And then later on in the match, he gave Finley a pile driver on the, the exposed floor, which got a nice, you know, gas from the crowd. Yeah, definitely. Um, I thought that juice did a great job in this match, kind of stooging off for Dave Finley quite a bit, like really selling, um, like he sold a lot as a baby face before, but it was like kind of like that tough guy selling. It wasn't like, Oh my God, I'm dying. So I can be extra like, you know, 
uh, extroverted about what's happening to me. And he's using these high pitched squeals and screams. Yeah. And, and he's like, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And begging off and just kind of being a fool about it. And Dave Finley's not even like feeding into it all. Like he's just got this like badass, like, you know, demeanor about him the entire time. So there was kind of a, a big contrast between their, the way they were approaching the match. But uh, one thing that pissed me off, <laughs> really, really pissed me off was like towards the tail end of the match, they, they gone through hell and back and had this classic war and Dave Finley hits the springboard uh, stunner off of the second rope. The same move that he used last year in the new Japan cup to beat Jay white. And it's like, oh my God, he landed it out of nowhere. He's got uh, juice finished. And then he like kind of like while pinning him, pins the inside leg instead of the outside leg and pushes him towards the ropes. And it's like, I get it. I know this has got to happen. I've seen it a million times, but I'm like, just fucking grab the right leg, you idiot. And then <laughs> juice puts his foot on the ropes. And I'm like, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the anti Tamatonga, the, the dumb baby face, the sting, if you would. <laughs> yeah, that was a uh, close near fall there. Cause yeah, the same sequence that he used the new Japan cup. So yeah, I thought that was going to be the win there, but yeah, juice gets his foot on the rope. Um, we did get a, a ref bump towards the end here. Initially when it happened, I was like, Oh boy, yep. here, here we go. Um, In fact, I feel like this still, even though the match was great, it, it did detract a little bit from the match for me still. Yeah, I don't think the ref bump was necessary, but it, it wasn't as egregious as some of the stuff that was happening in like the evil matches or right stuff like that. Um, but just the fact that we've been getting so much of it in the tournament and then get fed a little bit, even though it's less egregious, it's just more of the same. It's, uh, I still didn't like it a little bit. Yeah, so there was a ref bump, and then uh, Juice grabbed the U.S. title. He was going to hit. Finley with it, and Finley grabbed the shillelagh, which he's been carrying around for a couple months now, and he went to hit Juice. Juice blocked it with the belt, but uh, Finley knocked the belt out of his hand. Shillelagh hit Juice with the shillelagh. Went for the, the, the pinfall, got two count. He lifted Juice up before the three, hits him with the uh, trash panda, which is a, a brain buster to the knee, and he gets a big win here in the main event of Cork and Hall. He's able to beat uh, Juice Robinson here. And it's all kind of big, big win for Finley. Yeah, there was also during the match a lot of exchanges revolving around Juice hitting him with the right hand of God, and sort of like getting the hand injured. He couldn't land it, and he had to throw it with the left, and then he was able to land it with the right. Other way around, the left hand got got hurt, and he had to throw it the right. I knew it was something like that, and then from that point, like he landed it a few different places. There was a one really impactful uh, spot where. Dave Finley did a flying nothing to the outside. Yep. And you, always know, you, you always know they're going to get caught when they're doing a flying nothing where like, it's like, what hypothetically, if you had landed that, what would that have been? Right. You, it's kind of like hurled your body in there. I just, I just jumped in the air with no intention to get punched in the face. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he throws the, he does the flying nothing and he, he lands the right hand of God. That's pretty, pretty raw. So there was some great stuff in this match. The moment where, Juice got hit with the shillelagh and he's laid out and Dave Finley goes through the pin and then he raises his head up. I'm like, you stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> I was like, you're going to lose the match now. And I was like, that, it figures it's Dave Finley. It figures. But then he still won. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess, I guess they need to give him a stronger visual pin. All right. 
So he wins the match. That's all cool. Gets on the mic and he says, whatever claim to this U.S. title you think you might have had, you now lost it. I got the belt now. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Wait, what? And now, and and like, and he left with the belt. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're going to hear from Osprey on this whole thing, but I'm like, what? Like at the, at the end of the tour, I, it's supposed to be, you know, juice and, and Osprey again. And I assumed that the, quote unquote US title was gonna be, you know, somehow involved. Clearly we still have a Dave Finley Osprey match coming up. And who knows? I don't I don't have confidence that Dave Finley's not gonna drop a loss to someone between now and the time he wrestles Will Osprey. <laughs> right. Is this is this red strap just gonna keep getting passed around, you know, unofficially throughout this block throughout the D block until, you know, the end of the tournament? Like I don't get it. Yeah, I guess so. For me, I'm like, why hasn't Osprey come out and grabbed the belt? Like, he's on every show. Like, these guys are busy wrestling. Like, if you want the belt back that bad, just walk out and grab it. <laughs> Bro, there's a better question than that. Why hasn't the International Wrestling Grand Prix just awarded him a new red belt? Or why hasn't there been somebody sent to get the belt from Juice and give it back to Osprey? I mean, the whole notion that the belt is the title is incorrect. The belt is a representation of the title. The title is the title. The title holder right now is Will Ospreay. He's the champion. Just give him a new fucking belt. <laughs> you know, times are tired, man. Inflation, they don't want to spend all that money on a new belt. Well, then just have someone come take the belt from whoever you're like, you're like Especially with it being Dave Finley, you just be like, all right, David, we need the belt back. <laughs> Good win, kid. Uh, hand it over. <laughs> yeah, Will's, Will's going to need that belt back now. <laughs> you know one thing I like about Will Ospreay? I like that he's the United States champion and he's the British champion, you know? Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds that's very George Hackenschmidt, Frank Gotch to me. You know, he's unified <laughs> the, the two continents. Osprey, he might, the bridge he between might, two worlds. Yeah. He has the claim of being the champion of those two great nations. I mean, he, he might be world champion, basically. Yeah. Depending on how you look at it. Maybe he, he's the real All Atlantic champion. He might be the real All Atlantic. He might be the real intercontinental champion, if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So good main event here. Uh, big win for Dave Finley in the main event. I had a question here from Key Director three seven four eight. Is Juice Robinson's move to Bull Club actually good for his career in the short term? I feel at best it's a lateral move in the hierarchy of New Japan, and he probably has more people between him and a world title run than he did as a face. He went from probably the number two guy not in a faction to possibly the number four guy in Bull Club behind Jay, Evil, and Kenta. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not an accurate depiction of what has occurred here or what his trajectory or standing within the company was prior to this move. Juice Robinson was a guy that at best did sub 500 in the G1 every year and sometimes did less than that. 
Um, the number two guy, I don't even know what that means. The number two guy, not in a faction. Well, let's be clear. He was in a faction. The faction was Hauntai. And he was like pretty low on the Hauntai totem pole. I mean, he had Kota Ibushi above him. Tanahashi. Uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi. And even if those were the only two guys above him, which I'm not convinced they are, they're the only two that need to be above him because he's not passing those two guys. I mean, <laughs> right. in, what, in what world is Juice Robinson, the flamboyant Juice Robinson, defeating or surpassing Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kota Ibushi? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like The last time that Juice Robinson was relevant as a singles competitor was in 2018 or 2019 when he was wrestling uh, – Cody Rhodes for the U.S. title, and you know, oh, Mox. Yeah, like we said Mox many times on the show. Too. Yeah, the, the John Moxley match kind of killed all the momentum that he had. Well, well, I mean, technically, Mox is on tie too. So you got Mox, Tanahashi, and Kota Ibushi above them. That's three guys. Like that's that's not a good place to be. Uh, within Bullet Club, uh, I'm not convinced. I know that like. I know that your gatekeeper-ish Pearl hardcores are going to believe at this standpoint that Evil and Kenta are ahead of him in the pecking order of Bullet Club. And maybe, technically, there may be some truth to that. But uh, I'm not convinced that they're going to be above Juice Robinson for much longer or that they're not already on the same equal level, level playing field as him right now when was the last time that either those two guys were put in a four-way on a major main event pay-per-view card and defeated john moxley tanahashi and and will osprey never is the answer to that yeah Um, i feel like this has definitely been an elevation for juice a Um, huge elevation yeah i know even though he's still going for the u.s title you look at kind of the trajectory where he was at he was stuck in the, the fin juice tag team you know, just kind of doing stuff on impact, doing stuff on strong. Like his stock plummeted a lot over the last couple of years, and now he's on the rise. And you look at Evil, who, who pre this tournament's kind of been stuck in the never six man division. Kenta, uh, I mean, he's been off pretty much this whole year after getting wrecked by Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom, and I don't feel like they've gone super hard with Kenta. Uh, he hasn't won a title. Well, he was he won a never title, but that was kind of a short title reign. And they really haven't done much of him in that kind of direction for a title, really. I mean, he did have the red briefcase, but ended up losing the mocks. So I think Juice is in a very good position right now. And Will, like you said, when the dust settles, will be higher than Evil and Kenta. Juice has not been quote-unquote made just yet. It's not like he's an established, okay, he's here to stay. This is like a done deal sort of situation. It's not. It's still very precarious. It's still early days. It's, you know, early goings. But it's still an elevation nonetheless. Just like Evil winning the world title a couple years ago was an elevation. It just didn't stick because he sucked. (laughs) But Juice doesn't suck. And I do feel like we're seeing the early genesis of a career revitalization and elevation. And, you know, the other thing too is like, yeah, you also have to keep in mind that like there's always that chase for being a relevant 
top earning drawing Gaijin star. And that's a little different too. And, you know, that wasn't going to happen for him in Hantai where he was. And I can't imagine any other spot in the company. I mean, it was so much so people were calling for him to leave. They were like, you just, you're done. It's, it's time of the territory is done. He needs to get out. He's passionless, he's listless, you know, he's done. And now we're talking about a guy that could easily be the number two in the fucking bullet club. Right. You know, like, so no, I vehemently disagree with all of this. And if I was him and I had John Moxley, Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kota Bushi in front of me in the pecking order versus Kenta and evil and Jay white, I'll take bullet club. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, not everybody is going to be the world champion. Not everybody should be the world champion. And I don't think, I think he's going to be one of those guys that probably just never gets the world title. So I think it's better off for him to be a number two than just kind of be, you know, muddling around a hunt high and not really doing much. Who knows? Maybe he will be. I don't know. You know, but this is going to give him the platform and the opportunity to see what he's really made of, which that was never going to happen where he was. Yeah. So we have a couple other questions here related to the G1. Uh, first from Pumping Bomba. This, do you think Kenta should use his backstage promos to talk more about his upcoming book, which will release on July 26th? So far, he hasn't promoted it at all. Definitely. <laughs> uh, Trevolution now says, who has had the most entertaining post-match promos? Kenta, ZSJ, or rock hard Juice Robinson. I haven't been watching them. Um, I, I I saw the Kenta stuff of his book. Um, I've seen a couple of the sabers in, in Juice, but I would say probably right now, probably Kenta. I mean, Kenta's always kind of been the king of the backstage promos. Uh, next question here from Zach Porter: What's been your favorite post match interview so far, and why is it Kenta shelling his book in various ways? Uh. So, yeah, again, I think, yeah, Kenta with the whole, you know, acting like he's not putting the book over when he is putting the book over has has been pretty funny in the highlight of the backstage promos. I got to say it's probably the best one just based off the fact that that's the thing that's getting the most shares and attention. And like, even though I haven't been watching the promos, I've seen that one because everyone keeps sharing it to me. So, yeah. Uh, Ray and Bone Slam Pig says, is there anyone whose point standing is shocking to you at this early ju- juncture? Not really uh, for me personally. I mean, uh, because of how spread out everything is, very few people have had more than two matches and nobody has really like lost two that I wouldn't expect in the you know, in their individual situation. I mean, even if you pointed at, say, Naito, it makes sense based on Gato's history of booking. Now, Gato lose or if like Naito loses another one between now and the you know the last night of the block matchups, then I would be shocked. Yeah, I think right now it's it's definitely too early to be looking at the rankings and really analyzing it super deep, especially since you know some people just had their first match today, like. Great Ocon and Filthy Tom Lawler. So, yeah, it's kind of hard to look at the rankings and be surprised by point totals. I think, yeah, it's pretty pretty fair right now. I think once we get like another week of block action, I think we have a better picture of whose you know, trajectory is going up and who's going down and what the point totals look like. 
Uh, he also asked, what has been your favorite match of the tournament so far? I would go with White Ishii or Naito Tanahashi, maybe Osprey ELP or Taichi Ishii as close runner-ups. What's your favorite match so far? Um, I think for me, it, it's probably the um, Taichi and Ishii match. Yeah, I think for me, um, I think it's probably Kenta versus Zack Sabre Jr. Yeah, that, that was a really good matchup. I'm looking at cage match just to kind of see where they're, you know, what they're looking at, what they're thinking. And so far, it looks like the highest rated match of the tournament. Um, hmm. Looks like it's Jay White and Tomohiro Ishii at 8.64. Mm. Another great matchup. Yeah. And you said your favorite was Taichi and... Uh, and uh, Ishii. That's the only match I have at four and a half right now. Yeah, they got an 8.14 and they got the match I like at 8.42, a little bit above that. Um, and then the other two that are notable that are high up there would be Shingo Yoshihashi, which I don't know. I really like that match. So, you know, I could come around on that one. And then also Dave Finley and Juice Robinson's pretty high. Um, also, Okada Cobbs at 8.21. So, quite a few, you know, four-star level matches in the tournament so far. So, even though it hasn't been, like, just yet, like, holy shit, banger, just, you know, out there, there have been quite a few, like, four-star level matches. Yeah. Then last question here from Azurio says, if you had to pick your block winners now, who would they be? Um, I think it's... I think it'd be the same as what we kind of discussed during the um, during the preview show. Like, you know, for A block and B block, it looks like it, it's probably Okada White, but I have issues with that based on the the fall title defense situation and everything like that. So, I don't know, man. I, I I'm struggling with that one still. I mean, I think the chalk answer, though, is going to be Okada, Jay White, Naito, and then probably, you know, D-Block is a little bit more of a toss-up than I had originally anticipated. I had kind of thought that, like, Will Ospreay or, or Shingo were, like, your two obvious favorites for obvious reasons. I think that, like, Juice Robinson could maybe win that block, especially if they are elevating him. And that's not something I really discussed a lot during the preview. And I kind of overlooked. And then I also think ELP could be in play there too. Yeah, he could be. Yeah. So D block is like the block that I'm having the hardest time actually predicting. I think I'm still going with, um, I don't remember what I even predicted. I, I think, think you, you you went with Shingo. Shingo to do a Shingo Naito semifinal. I think that's because I think Will's gonna lose to Juice. Yeah. And set up that big match between them. But uh yeah, I think it's yeah. Shingo versus Naito makes the most sense to me still. Yeah, I'll, I'll like to see either Shingo or Naito or Shingo and Will. But yeah, I think it's right now kind of the people who 
people think are going to win are kind of the ones that are set up that way right now. But I wouldn't be surprised if Rock Hard goes through. He could, yeah. Especially if you want to establish him, you could do Rock Hard versus Naito. I think that that would be a fun match. It's just a block winner. It's not like the finals of the G1, you know? Right. And I mean, it would be kind of boring if it was just Okada, Jay White, Naito, and then some other big name. It'd be nice if one of these blocks saw somebody kind of get elevated on some level. Yeah. So the current standings going into this week, A block, Kazuchika Okada leads a block of four points. Then you have Yano, Fale, Cobb, and Archer with two points. Tom Waller and Jonah with zero points in the B block. You got Jay White leading the block with four points. Taichi, Tantango Sonata, Chase Owens with two points. Great Okan and Ishii with zero points. C block, you have Zack Sabre Jr. leading the block with four points. And Aaron Hanare, Goto, Tanahashi, and Evil with two points. Naito and Kento with zero points. Then the D block, you have Osprey, Robinson, Yujiro, Shingo, ELP, and Dave Finley, all of two points, and Yoshihashi with zero points. And then uh, looking at the upcoming matches for this week, so on night seven, Wednesday, July 27th, from the D block, we have Yujiro versus Will Osprey. From the A block, Yano versus Bad Luck Fale. From the C block, Goto versus Aaron Hanare. And the main event from the B block, Ishii versus Tamatonga. Then on Saturday, July 30th, from the D block, Shingo versus Finley. A block, Jonah versus Tom Lawler. B block, Sonata versus Great Khan. And then the main event from the C block, Tanahashi versus Zack Sabre Jr. Then on Sunday, July 31st, night nine, we expand to five block matchups. So on the A block, we'll have Archer versus Cobb. From the D block, Yoshihashi versus Hughes Robinson. From the B block, Chase versus Jay White. From the A block, Okada versus Balak Fale. From the C block, Naito versus Evil. And then the last night before we record again will be Tuesday, August 2nd, night 10. From the B block, Ishii versus Great Khan. From the A block, Yano versus Tom Mahler. From the B block, Sonata versus Tamatanga. From the C block, Kenta versus Hiroki Goto. And from the D block, David Finley versus Will Ospreay. Yeah, man. So Saturday, we have G1 action. Plus, we have Music City Mayhem. Plus... We have New Japan Strong Plus. It's your bachelor party. So like, and I got other stuff going on that night too. So, or that day. So I'm like, Saturday is crazy. Yeah, it's, yeah, literally jam-packed of New Japan. Going to try and watch some of that during the day before the bachelor party. Um, Maybe have to do some catch-up on Sunday. But yeah, it's going to be a weekend full of wrestling. Uh, but speaking of Music City Mayhem, we'll just go over that card real quick. Uh, so first, we we got the ominous black and white Lion Mark logo. Clark Connors out with injury. He is going to miss Music City Mayhem, and he missed this past weekend's um, tapings in Tennessee for the High Alert Tour. So Clark Connors, he sustained a herniated disc in his back, and that's what has removed him from these shows. So replacing him at these this past weekend's tapings was uh, Blake Christian in that three-way with Hiromu and El Sparado. And then on the Music Music City Mayhem, he's being replaced by our good friend Rocky Romero. So the full card will have Freddie Yehai, Shoto Umino, and Yu Yuomura versus Kevin Knight, Ren Narita, and the DKC. Then it'll be an MLW National Openweight title match with David Richards defending against Rocky Romero. A strong openweight title match. Fred Rosser defending its Big Demo. 
Hiromu Takahashi versus Blake Christian. FTR teaming with Alex Zane to take on Aussie Open and TJP. Team white males. <laughs> Even though all the people involved are white males, only FTR and Alex Zane are team white males. <laughs> uh, in the semi-main event, Alex Shelley will take on his time splitter partner, Kushida. And then the big main event, no disqualification match, the Death Rider John Moxley versus El Desperado. What are your overall thoughts on this card? It looks good. I wouldn't pay pay-per-view to watch this. When is it airing? It is airing, I think it's like 3 or 4 p.m. Eastern. Okay, and then later that night is SummerSlam, and then the next day is, you know, Ric Flair's last match, a.k.a. he might die. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's a interesting card. Um, again, I wish it's something that you could just watch on new Japan world or access TV. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, it's a cool, it's a really cool card for sure, but I've kind of seen what some of these like produce level new Japan that they exist in their own, like little universe pay-per-views are like, and they're very good. They're entertaining but I also wouldn't pay pay-per-view money to watch it. Just like I didn't want to, you know, I, I didn't pay pay-per-view money to watch uh, ROH this past week. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it should be a fun card. I mean, I think there's a, a potential for great matches between Mox and Despi, Shelly and Kushida, and Hiromu and Blake Christian. Uh, totally in agreement. And uh, I do think it's interesting that they have a strong openweight title match not on strong, which I don't think they've done too much of that at all. Yeah, they've never done that because we've complained that they have all these U.S. interviews and Philly Tom never gets a singles match. He's always stuck in it. He he defended the title against Yuji Nagata the one time, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. But for the majority of his title run, yeah, he didn't defend the title off strong at all. Yeah. Yeah, interesting first challenger, Big Demo, not setting up roster with a, a great first challenger here. Well, you know, Damo, he's in the top 10 of uh, New Japan Strong's uh, power rankings. <laughs> they come out with them weekly. Yeah. So then uh, real quick, we had night three of the Ignition Tour from New Japan Strong this past weekend. We had uh, J.R. Kratos defeating Jordan Cruz in a four-minute squash match. Dave Finley, Masco Dorada, and Rocky Romero defeating Adrian Quest, Lucas Riley, and Negro Costas in 11 minutes. And then the main event was the Last semifinal match, actually the first semifinal match in the strong tag team title tournament with the fallen angel Christopher Daniels and New Yamura pulling the upset victory over Mikey Nichols and Shane Hayes to advance to the finals. Yep. So next week, New Japan Strong Ignition Night 4, Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern on July 30th. We have the matchups of Tanahashi, Fred Rosser, and Kevin Knight taking on Jay White, Hikaleo, and Chase Owens. There's a NJPW Strong Openweight Tag Team Tournament semifinal between Aussie Open and Stray Dog Army. And then singles matches between Fred Yehai and Bateman, as well as Jeff Cobb and Jordan Clearwater. It's fine and amazing that Tanahashi and Jay White and Chase and Cobb. Don't do this. Don't do this. <laughs> I, was, I thought to myself, I was like, I, we, we can make the how did they, how did they get here joke, but it's this just been going for like two years, and it's the same old hat. <laughs> we tell this joke every week. <laughs> We're gonna tell this joke into infinity forever. forever. 
Oh my god. So uh, moving on to the news and some quick stuff here. Another uh, black and white logo situation here with um, Vegeta. He suffered an injury. He missed today's Cork and Hall show. He's going to miss tomorrow's Cork and Hall show as well. And so, yeah. And so they just said as a result of damage sustained in this match and one saying and Sendai, he's being removed as precautionary measures. I never got hurt in my wrestling career. (laughs) That's true. I take care of myself, you know. Um, last year saw New Japan Academy, the Magna that was uh, chronicling the career of Tetsuya Naito, reimagined as a high school drama that was translated to English for the first time, that received great success with Volume One. That's leading to a second installment of Saga coming out with another translation. Volume Two will be available through Yen Press on August twenty third. L. Lindemann will be defending the Glate G-Rex Championship against our man Doki on Wednesday, August 24th. Counting and, down the days. Yeah, that's going to be a dope matchup. Big opportunity for Doki there. And then uh, Tiger Mask, Robbie Eagles, and our good friend Rocky Romero will compete in the CMLL International Grand Prix. Yeah, I think that's like a Cybernetico match. And... I'm not even like I've heard a lot about what cyberneticos are, but I've never actually watched one, so I'm not totally sure how they really even work. <laughs> but yeah, they'll be in it. And then it's a few uh, questions here. Then we'll do recommend the match of the week and wrap the show up. So uh, Les Commission seven two five two says, in y'all's opinion, who do you guys think was a top heel before Jay White in 2019? I would have to go with Cody with him feuding with Kenny and Ibushi, two of Japan's top babyfaces behind Tanahashi. He defeated Ibushi in Japan and Kenny in the U.S. And there was also that certain time where he could have beat Kenny for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship in San Francisco and walked into G1 as champion. Was there anyone else that was above him as a top heel? Hmm. It's a pretty great question. Um, I mean, I definitely think he was doing the best heel work, but he wasn't the top heel of the company uh in roh he was and i think that probably translated well to like his standings in new japan but like i i can't call him the top heel what are you thinking i'm trying to think who was on top as the heels in that time period um suzuki yeah, I was kind of thinking Suzuki, but like I have trouble with that as well. Uh, Saber? No. Hmm. I mean, to a certain extent, to a certain extent, I would just say Kenny. To be honest with you. Um, well, I would say, yeah, leading into the, the Cody turning on him, yeah, he was kind of positioned as a top heel, but then once the turn happened, then he was he was babyface. Right. Like, he didn't do the full heel turn until the Golden Lovers moment with, with Cody up to that moment. Like, I know he wasn't necessarily, like, the kind of heel that people... Like, he wasn't doing the kind of heel work that Cody was, granted. He was the top heel of the company for the from what I would gather. And I mean, he was the big foil to Okada and to everybody else in the company. I, that would be, that's probably who I would say was the top heel. Yeah. 
His next question: What New Japan wrestling time period do you got? Would you guys visited or revisit? Huh. Um. What does he mean by that? I guess maybe what's our our favorite time period that we like to to watch or rewatch. I mean, yeah, like the pure, like the period that this show is kind of covered, and just the period just prior to that, like twenty sixteen to like twenty nineteen, is like one of the all time greatest runs of any company ever from you know like a, a match quality standpoint from a creative standpoint booking standpoint talent standpoint there's a lot there yeah i think the, the i'll call it the the kiss era has been a, a really great time period but also i like watching some of the 90s stuff where we, we watch like the steiner brothers and a lot of the junior stuff with liger and a lot of super junior stuff that ha- happened Throughout the '90s, I think the '90s was a, was a fun time period to to go back and watch. I like the Dark Ages. You like the Enochism? Yeah, <laughs> it fucking rules. <laughs> there's a lot of bad stuff, but there's a lot of really great stuff in that period. And the last question: Did you guys see the amazing video of Osprey going off on Kenny Omega for the cease and desist about his T-shirt? Nah, I didn't want to get worked. Yeah, I didn't watch the video, but I did see a he had released his own best bout machine shirt, and then yeah, he had received a cease and desist and had to take it down from Pro Wrestling Tees. So. Work, <laughs> work, 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 work. Uh, <laughs> but but it's a good work. I mean, I'm sh- I think he really did release a shirt. I think Kenny really got a cease and desist. And it was all pre-done. Like I think the two of them were like, "All right, I'm gonna do this, and then I'm gonna do this, and that, and then we can actually do it, and then we can actually like build a story off of it." But I think these guys, you know, I'm I'm not for any minute under the illusions that this is something that happened that wasn't premeditated. Yeah. Um, next question from Fonz one seven zero. Honest opinions on Abushi from here on out. Do you think he retires or is he so upset with the company that he's just writing out his contract and will jump ship to another promotion when his contract is over? Um, I would say go back and maybe listen to some of our discourse on this subject over the past few weeks. I don't have much more to add to it. I, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, we've had nothing but honest discussion about it the whole time it's been unfolding, though. The one thing I will say, I think for sure we see Abushi wrestle again. Now, whether he wrestles for New Japan or whether he even wrestles at the kind of top level that we're used to seeing him wrestle, those are the big questions. But I mean, hypothetically, let's say if he's really injured, really bad, and he's also on the outs with New Japan, could I see him pulling an Onita and coming back and working a different style, like an old man style or a hardcore style or some sort of something else so that he can go out there and entertain and fulfill this like need to be in the ring, entertaining folks and performing. Yeah. He's going to wrestle. I just don't know under what context. Yeah. It's probably going to be him starting up, you know, his three-sided ring promotion. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll believe that when I see it. Uh, Dark Soldier says, which title would you bring back to NJPW if given the chance? 
the WWF World Martial Arts Championship. <laughs> um, I think the the U thirty title could be something cool <laughs> to to bring back and help promote the uh, youth movement in New Japan. What about the IWGP Provisional Tag Team Championship? <laughs> Why were there provisional tag titles? Bro. <laughs> I don't really know. There was like a period where they had a provisional tag team title. <laughs> oh, man. Um, no, actually, my real answer would probably be the J-Crown. Mm. Yeah, bring that shit back. Yeah. And that would, if they did that, Homicide would have to be involved because he is the current reigning NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion. So, would you add to that? What would you would you add newer junior titles to it? No, I would. We would have to bring back all the original eight tag eight junior titles that made up the J Crown, just like the Infinity Stones. Mm. Yeah. But I always think it's funny, you know, the the great and illustrious, you know, Les Thornton, you know, um, fucking Tiger Mask, <laughs> you know, uh, Jushin Thunder Liger, Danny Hodge, and Homicide, the great NWA junior champions of all time. Sounds like that, great list. <laughs> great list. Homicide, dog. <laughs> All right, uh, recommended match of the week. So last week for the excursion match, I picked the uh, GHE title match from No Destination 2022, Kojima versus Kano. Yes, this match was um, very good, but kind of a slower pace than I anticipated it actually being. Um, I guess I don't know what I expected. It's a Kojima big style main event in 2022 and he clearly like still has the fire and drive to do this and he i mean he doesn't look bad but i also don't think he has the um the gas tank to go out there and perform at that top level you know at that top gear anymore really yeah and uh but him and kano they went out there and they they really laid into each other it was very very stiff it was very hard hitting it was by no means a bad main event. It was a great main event. I probably go like four stars on it, but like the first two thirds of it, I just wasn't really believing it. The, the, what kind of turned it around for me was there was a moment where Kano was on the top rope and um, Kojima like hit him with like a lariat and put him in a hangman position on the outside and they started counting him out. He almost got counted out on the outside from there. And that's sort of when things turned up. And um, I was waiting for Cano to light his kick pad on fire, pull a Joey Janela. He never did. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and then the finish, I mean, I, you know, I'm not the biggest Noah guy, so I don't know every – I've seen Cano's work, but I don't know everything about him. And it, the finish just happened, and I was like, oh, that's it? <laughs> Beat this man. So, you know, it's going to be interesting. Um They've got a big tournament coming up in all Japan and uh, Yuji Nagata's in it. And then they've got the N1 victory and, and um, freaking Satoshi Kojima's in that, which is kind of surprising. So I, I almost thought that they got the title off of him so he could avoid being in that tournament, taking all his losses, but he's going to be in the tournament still, even without the title. 
But um, yeah, if you haven't seen this match, I'd highly recommend it. It's a great match. It's not, in my opinion, going to be a contender for excursion match of the year. I don't think it quite hit those levels. But uh, nonetheless, a great, believable, hard-hitting, very stiff and fun you know, main event for the Big Noah show. Yeah. Then for a recommended match of the week, you picked the NJPW lockup match from November 24th, 2017, or excuse me, uh, 2007, uh, with Tomiyo Ishii versus uh, Daisuke Sakamoto. And man, this was a hoss match. Uh, these guys were going out here, all the lariats, all the chops. Uh, Sakamoto was just incredible in this match. And with a guy his and size, you never seen you never seen him young either. Huh? No, yeah, young Sakamoto. This guy went out here did a this crazy like suicide dive, and this guy's like super jacked, and he's flying through the ropes of suicide dive. He was hitting these huge crazy lariats on Ishii, um, beautiful suplexes. So these guys were just going back and forth, and you know it's always interesting seeing like young Ishii as well with, with the hair and. A lot of the same offense Ishii had with those those big lariats. He was going for um, Brainbuster for his finish, and so yeah, these guys just clubbered each other. Very hard hitting, very entertaining. Um, like I said, Sakamoto was just doing a lot of crazy stuff. He did a frog splash at one point, and so just seeing a guy as jacked as him, just kind of the way he was moving around the ring was just awesome to see. So yeah, this was a really fun match to watch. What would you go rating wise on that? Uh, I think I'd go like four and a half. Nice. So that's a pretty big recommend, huh? Yeah. Awesome matchup. Nice. So um, next week uh, is going to be my week for uh, the excursion match of the week. I actually lost it. What What did I recommend? Oh, um, yeah, I'm recommending the match from uh, Galate, May 18th, 2022. Um, and that match sees the long anticipated matchup where Shima teams up with Shingo Takagi in Glate to take on the team of Ryochi Kawakami and Kazuma Sakamoto. And that is available for free on njpwworld.com. Nice. Then I have the recommended match of the week pick. We're going to go to G1 Climax 2017, uh, July 17th, from the A Block, Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Zack Sabre Jr., the first meeting between these two gentlemen. Interesting. It's been a while since, uh, since I've seen that match, so I'm not even at the, because I've seen them wrestle so many times at this point. I'm not even really recalling exactly what happened in that match, so that's probably it's probably a good recommend in that case. Yep, and then these guys are facing off this weekend as well in this year's G1, so just thought it'd be a, a fun matchup to watch as we build to, the, to their match coming up. Nice. And that's going to wrap things up for us this week. Next week, we'll be back to our review more nights of G1 Climax 32. So if you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and click on the donate button under the Keeping Strong Style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at KI Strong Style. The network is at Social Suplex. You can follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan. 
on Facebook. We are facebook.com slash suplex. Also find us in the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash Wrestling Squared Circle. On Instagram, we are at social suplex. On Reddit, I'm the pro black guy. Just keeping it strong style. You can email me, Jeremy, at socialsuplex.com. Check out all the other shows that we have here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. The Grave Consequences, hosted by Caleb and Maserati. All Things Elite with Floyd and Austin. The AEW Match Guide Podcast, hosted by Sir Sam. And Great Match Generator, hosted by Danny. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And we will catch you next week on Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Itchy Bond. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time.